Good evening, friends. It's the Book of Very, Very Bad Things podcast, episode two. Thanks so much for being with us. You know, it's undeniable the importance of the early 1990s. Can't really be overstated. From the rise of alternative rock, post-hardcore, pop-punk, grunge, industrial, goth, golden era hip-hop. In the shadows of this wave of indie-gone major label feeding frenzy, another wave was brewing, one that relied more on atmosphere, less upon raucousness, upon bombast. At the jet-black heart of all of this lay Lycia. The brainchild of Mike Van Portfleet, Lycia was born as his side project. The extracurricular idea snowballed into a full-fledged band, employing the post-punk angles of Killing Joke and Tubeway Army, as well as the psychedelia of Pink Floyd and the guitar chops of Mark Boland's T-Rex. Years pass, and his dream of having a female counterpart as vocalist comes to pass with the entrance of Tara Van Flower. From there, with a sound more fully realized, this collective released some of the most important records of the past 30 years. They continue to do so, and have graced us with a new EP, Casa Luna. Their first record, Ionia, as well as the dismal and divine Cold, have recently been reissued through Italy's avant-garde. Lycia is still vital. They're still dismal. And they're still divine. I give you Mike. I give you Tara. I give you Lycia. There we go. Can you hear us now? Yes, I can. Somehow the internal microphone was muted. That's literally never happened before. (laughs) It is Friday the 13th, so I would expect nothing less. It's kind of dark. Hold on. Let me grab a light. How are you? I'm doing good. How about yourself? I'm well, thank you. All things considered, as it's uh, in the midst of some sort of uh, electrical malady going on in the sky the past two nights. You know, we, we, we're we having um, uh, summer thunderstorms out here ourselves. Not right now, but um, after having a couple dry years, we've had some um, a lot of rain. Right. So we might have a thunderstorm roll in here, too. So, Well, that, that would be uh, <laughs> synchronous. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I'm so glad to have you here. Um, thanks for having us. Yeah. Um, I, I really appreciate it. And, um, just to give you a little background, the first thing I usually ask in these things, I've, I've done three thus far and I always ask everyone I interview, what is it that terrifies you the most, um, mortally speaking, not just like, mm-hmm. oh, oh my God, there's a bee. Oh my God. It's a snake. That's a Some, something a little more, uh, spiritual cuts a little deeper to the bone okay okay um you want right now okay have we started um we can i'll tell you what we can we can uh start uh right now if you wish all right right. sure 
Um, so I'll, I guess I can ask again, uh, what is it that terrifies you on a, on a deep and mortal, like truly spiritual terror? What instills that in you? You want me to go first? Go first. So ever since I was a little child, um, time has scared me. So just it, the fact that it's just keeps going and you have no control over it. And then you stop and think about how every second you live, you're dying. And thus, so is everybody else around you. So even as a little kid, I used to sit and make myself cry thinking about this. And then especially now as an adult, when I have my child and they change so noticeably quickly. Yes, they do. And then, you know, we're older parents. So our son's nine. He'll be 10 in a couple weeks. And I start doing math in my head. And there's been times when I've woken up, like when I'm this age, he'll only be this age. And I get really freaked out about it. And thinking about moving on and leaving him by himself <laughs> terrifies me too, because I've always taken care of him since the day his cells began to divide. Right. So the thought of not being able to take care of him panics me. So yeah, I wake up sometimes from that, <laughs> like in the middle of the night, freaked out thinking about it. So that would be my main terror. <laughs> yeah, I would have to agree that with it, without a doubt is my terror too. Um, I'm older than Tara and um, it, it's on my thoughts all the time. I always think about when we lived back in Ohio, there was this old guy that lived um, a couple stories below us. He was really old. And we used to see him go out every day and do his bird feeder. And I used to look down from our balcony at him and think, oh, my God, someday that's going to be me. And to realize that I'm closer to him now than I was back to myself back then. Yeah. It then sometimes waves a panic through me like, oh, yeah. time has gone by very quickly. And we're definitely walking down the hill now. And it's, it's frightening. It's, it is frightening. <laughs> I hate it. I hate it. Yeah. Especially with a child involved, my my son's two. I'm 45. Yeah, so like, I'm an older parent. Yeah. And yeah. Yes, I can relate to that. Um, I was a first time parent with our son at age 48. Yeah. And math played a part right from the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was 39, I think. And you know, because of being an older mom, I had to get all those special tests, and right. you know, so it, it's weird because you don't you don't realize that you're aging until it's kind of pointed out to you in some way. And so from the get go being called like a high risk pregnancy and yep. just simply based on a number, yeah. <laughs> how old I am, you know, it's just, it's, it, it, so it kind of really hammered in that fear of time even more to me, you know? So yeah, that's a lot of my stuff that I write is about time and, the fear of it and the hatred of it and the escape from it kind of, you know, probably why I love vampires so much because they don't are, they are unaffected by it. That very true. Yeah. Um, so uh, oblivion is mine. And I think that actually plays into what we've been speaking of um, yeah. that fear of being left isolated and alone, which strangely enough is what attracted me most to Ionia when it first came out. <laughs> I think it uh I think it beautifully juxtaposed my love of T-Rex and my love of Bauhaus and just mm. 
smash them together in a beautiful way. I, because, I like that comparison. Yeah, that's a good like comparison. Two of my favorite bands and coming from the Pennsylvania hardcore scene, which can honestly be somewhat, uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't call it bigoted, but it's bigoted. <laughs> I, I my my love of the cure and of 70s glam rock sort of set me apart from all of them. So I actually found Lycia in the back of I believe Spin Magazine. There was a, a project records uh ad tucked way in the back. And <laughs> it's project dark wave goth I, I was like okay i'm i'm obviously going to send myself a dress stamped envelope for the, uh, <laughs> for for my uh catalog and re reading through the descriptions only two groups caught my eye uh lycia being one of them the other i honestly don't even recall any longer because i didn't particularly like them as much as lycia so <laughs> i glommed on to lycia and you know, uh, eventually uh, discovered Sam's band, Black Tape for a Blue Girl. Um, but I have to say, throughout the that period of project, he seemed to push you as much as he had pushed himself. And I, I have to admit, that's pretty great for a, a, a fledgling label owner to push you as far as he did in that time period. Mm -hmm. um, but as I've been able to estimate, dark music uh we've always been enamored of it um especially in early rock and roll uh you have your robert johnson in the blues screaming jay hawkins what do you think it is that draws us especially people of our musical tastes to that specific uh genre that 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 little line that connects or disconnects music it's hard to answer. I don't really know. I mean, back in the early 80s, I remember me and my friends used to talk about how we liked dark, sad music and that dark, sad, sad music gave us comfort. And it seems yeah. strange to me. It doesn't make any sense. But I'm looking at the, the albums behind you right there. Yeah. And The Doors. No, I, was a, I was a little boy in the late 60s, probably not much older than your son. And I heard light my fire on the radio probably when it was a hit and there was just something dark and mysterious and exotic about it that even as a four-year-old I was just completely attracted to it and I go back to that summer all the time because it was that that song a couple songs by the Jefferson Airplane White Rabbit and um somebody to love or someone to love. I can't remember exactly. <laughs> and I can see for miles by the who there was just this dark mystery to it all. And I don't, I, I don't, I can't answer your question. I don't know what, what it is. There are certain people that are attracted to dark music and the people that are unlike us seem to be quite repelled by it. <laughs> yeah. But I find, I find great, comfort in dark music i always have i i just i discovered my sexuality through it everything every every aspect of my being i think is intrinsically tied to that mm -hmm. tara where do you feel all of this stems from in we, we the uh esoteric <laughs> i think I don't, you know i mean i just think that because you're almost 
a part you're a part of the world but but not a part of the world so you're always kind of on this one of these kids is doing his own thing right. whether it, and it has nothing to do with how you look or anything it's just this vibe that you have and so i think that there's just something because you you have this moodiness you know and i'm sure like we just talked about from being a little kid on you don't get comfort from things that are so contrary to your personality. So, you know, happy people tend to like, and I don't even want to say they're happy people, maybe people that don't dwell on things that freak them out so much, um, tend to like music that's happier and maybe not as much depth to it. And then people like us kind of seek out that moody stuff, probably because it reflects a little bit more about what goes on in your mind. You know, and like, I'm sure you're the same where you're contemplating the universe and, you know, what's here and after and before and alt dimensions and, you know, all exactly. of this kind of stuff. And so you're listening to music that kind of fits that vibe because it makes you feel comfortable. Like maybe you're not alone. Maybe there's this cult of people in the world that feel exactly like you do, even though you might be alone in your personal bubble situation, you know, not surrounded by like-minded people or whatever. So it was definitely like this sort of comforting escapist. Um, you find your, you found your cult, you know, you found not cult. I shouldn't say cult. You found your tribe. <laughs> Maybe it's a cult. I don't know, but yeah, I don't know. I just think it's a comfort thing because it's feels familiar and um, relatable. I think that's what made Ian Curtis stand out to probably all of us. Um, uh, an incredibly flawed, but absolutely unencumbered by anything surrounding him type of person. Uh, and people only know maybe like two to three songs from Joy Division, your normal passerby. Mm -hmm. um, but I think between what Joy Division had given to us in that very brief moment they uh exemplified what post-punk should have been and could have been had anyone really been listening um and i feel very much the same way about what you have done but i think i think ionia ruined me in in a very big way for a lot of other bands that got lumped in with you but i think have nothing to do with you because when although i like london after midnight i don't think they have anything to do with you to me you are um like dark psychedelic experimental rock not gothic music mm -hmm. not that there's anything wrong with right, goth exactly. or dark wave it's it's it has more in common with pink floyd to me than than uh your goth dance uh vibe and uh i don't know I, I i actually have visions of of both of you sitting home with your headphones on listening to dark side of the moon going you know what i could do that better <laughs> well you probably saw me ants being antsy over here first of all thank you ah, thank, I appreciate thank you thank you because this is what lycia is now what lycia always was i i I think we were misrepresented and you're right. I sit around and I do listen to Pink Floyd. The difference being is I never say <laughs> I can be better than that. But um, 
you bring up psychedelic music, you bring up Pink Floyd, a, a prog rock band. This is this kind of stuff that I grew up on. Mm -hmm. And Lycia is an extension of that. You merge that with the post-punk stuff that really influenced me. That's Lycia. Mm -hmm. um, in 1993, Lycia played their our first shows. And we went to um, California and played a club. It was the first time I really witnessed what was considered goth. And I was shocked. I, I, I had no idea. I mean, we, Lycia had been classified as goth because, you know, Project Records was calling us goth, but I didn't know what that meant. I was a fan of Wire and Killing Joke and Joy Division as well as the Roxy Music and David Bowie. And I didn't understand this goth scene and I never understood our fit in that scene or in the the, the classification that we got of being ethereal because I always saw my vocals as being desperate and gruff and ethereal is almost like polished angelic angelic singing. Yeah. I've always felt that we've been out of sync. You're, you're more, your vocals are more punk. Right. My opinion. That's my where, opinion. Yeah. Well, that you're right. Cause I went from you, you mentioned glam rock earlier. I'm also a big glam rock fan. I love the sweet. I saw sweet in 1976 when I was in seventh grade, <laughs> you know, there watching ballroom blitz being performed live. It was amazing. I, in the seventies, I owned Roxy music albums and I was into all that stuff. And like everyone from that era, you, you progressed to punk. Punk was a big mm -hmm. part of my life. Yeah. It was, it opened the door and then post-punk opened the door farther. Um, the 90 definition of goth, I had already been doing music since 81 and I just, I didn't really quite understand what was going on with that whole scene. I was appreciative of the support, but I didn't see how we fit. In fact, in that start corner tour, um, you know, the goth people were sort of disappointed by the fact that I didn't look goth because I, all the pictures was were blurry before. All the pictures where I remember the pictures of Lycia and uh, there, there it was, you couldn't see anything. And the first time I'd clearly seen you, Mike, you were in a flannel and I said, this is my guy. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Uh, hey, I'm not going to complain about people supporting us, but right, I, what I, I know, what I've always struggled with is people wanting me, me to be something that I'm not. And, um, all the bands that we've discussed before have been honest bands, just just doing what they do naturally. And that's all I've ever wanted from Lycia. And I don't I don't want us to be restricted by any particular style. I just want to go where it goes and just be honest to ourselves. And you know, we've been called goth for so long, and I'm like, do we really even have any goth songs? We have yeah. moody songs and it's dark. It all depends on what your definition of goth is, because there's so, you know, to me, goth is a very specific thing. Like you mentioned London After Midnight, Christian yeah. Death, like 45 Grave, that kind of stuff to me is goth. It's death rock. Yeah. Yeah. Rock. And we don't have anything to do with that. And so it was always weird to me, like. The Cure is not a goth band. You know, Killing Joke is not a goth band. Joy Division is not a goth band. So. It, it didn't make sense to me to hold us to these like goth standards when 
that wasn't our thing anyway. And so it was really, it was frustrating at times. Um, not so much now, but back when we toured and stuff, it was frustrating because you could see the like irritation on people's faces when, you know, we show up and at the, Mike's got long brown hair and a giant beard and cowboy boots on. And I'm wearing like Adidas track pants and a hoodie, yes. you know, and, and it's like we used to stand out in the crowd like we we would start our set. We had this long intro piece and we would stand out in the crowd and watch the stage so he could hear what it was going to sound like and we could make adjustments or whatever. And we would just be standing out in the crowd and people would be looking at us like, why are you even here? Like, who are you? Like, you don't fit in this, whatever. And then walk up on stage halfway through this intro. And you could sometimes see the look on people's faces of like, oh shit, I was rude to that chick or whatever. <laughs> like it, it just, and it was, we found it huge. Like, I think it's funny. Like that crap's funny to me. Yeah. But you know, it could be definitely aggravating. And then when you've got people telling you, no, you're a goth band because goths like you. And it's like, that's not really how things work. No. <laughs> you know? No. And uh, yeah. That's like saying Stanley Kubrick is a goth because goths like The Shining. Or it doesn't make logical sense, you know? It's like calling Iron Maiden a punk band because punks like them. And they're right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't make sense. Yeah. So I, I, all of this in mind, I mean, the amount of times I've seen you is minimal. I've seen you four times. And one of those times was with uh, Typo Negative. Oh, and wow. the, uh, the reception sucked. Where, mean, was, where was that? I believe it was Irving Plaza in New York City, if I'm not mistaken. Rosalind, probably. Rosalind, that's what it was. Yeah, yeah. You know what's yeah. funny about that? That was the, be the, that was the best show of that tour. <laughs> You've got to be kidding me because you, happy. you should have yeah. been up in Syracuse when um, that was brutal. They, um, the, the house sound guy who was just funk, you know, helping out on the side of the stage told us that, that our treatment was the worst treatment he ever saw <laughs> in his entire career. Um, it was punk rock for sure, man. Yeah. I mean... Luckily, I have a punk rock background, so getting spit on, I was just like, oh, really? Are we back to this again? <laughs> We're gobbing again. Yeah, so here we go again. I was just standing in front of my rack of equipment like, if something's going to get broke, it's going to be me, not my equipment. <laughs> I think yeah. I sort of... I think I sort of owe you an apology as well because I had a hand in booking you on the Estrella tour in Music, Pennsylvania at a club oh, called no. CC's. That yes. Was, no, that was great. I don't consider that a bad show. No. I mean, the crowd was not exceptionally bad to us. No. And, well, uh, it was a very it was a very scant crowd. There weren't enough people, and I I marched every mall. And flyered the shit out of it because for a very brief time I was on the project street team. Oh. And <laughs> I had my band played at this club constantly. I was in a grindcore band. Did you play that night? No, I did not. I didn't want to make a fool of myself in front of people who I'd considered uh, almost otherworldly. Oh, and, and, you know, I didn't want to come out there screaming my ass off and punching myself in the face because that's what I did at the time. Um, obviously not now because I'm a father of two and I'm just, that's not who I am <laughs> anymore. But at the time, that's who I was. And I talked the club owner into booking you uh, over the course of several days. 
and he listened to you. He actually liked it because he he didn't understand hardcore. So yeah. <laughs> anything that wasn't that obnoxious, he was all about. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I always felt like I owed you somewhat of an apology no, for that. that funny show. <laughs> We've had a lot of unusual shows, but I would not consider that to be uh -huh. something that I would file on the negative side. My memories of that show was that it was interesting to be playing in a place. I remember when we showed up, someone told us it was a hardcore club and we didn't care. Well, I, mean, I think Chromags were on the sign outside. Maybe. Yeah. In my past, I I played somewhat similar music to Lycia at in front of hardcore, you know, with on a bill with hardcore bands. Yeah. I we never had an issue with that. But I, what I remember about that night is I don't know if we've ever flooded a club with as much smoke <laughs> as we did that club. Because I remember while we were playing, two things re really stick with me. One is that I could barely see my strings because <laughs> the smoke was so thick. And I also remember about halfway through the set, someone opened that back door and put a massive fan. It was an older guy, probably the owner. And I just looked over yeah. and I thought, this is cool. He's putting a fan on as opposed to some other places that come up and start screaming at us on the stage. Yeah. No, music was yeah. music was all right. It was all yeah. right. I also remember that our roadie laid down in the middle of the stage on the floor in front of us while we were and playing. ran the smoke yeah. machine and nobody could even see him because there was so much smoke. Yeah. And that one of the bands that played before us, the drummer only wore little bikini underwear. And you were standing with your mag light, like, don't touch my equipment. <laughs> yeah, the drummer was like set. He was wild. He was a very um, energetic drummer, and he was inches. inching closer to he the was, equipment. Because he was so energetic, his drum seat was slowly moving back, and it was right next to the um, my effects rack and you know, we're and once again, we had to protect that effects. rack. Yeah, because I mean, we didn't have money. We had really no tour support. And so it was like, if that rack gets wrecked, we're the done. Tour's done. So I remember I had this big mag light flashlight. <laughs> and I was like, I hope, I hope I really hope I don't have to use this, but I remember know. my dad bought that for you. Yeah. Before we left. <laughs> but no, no, no bad thoughts at all about music. Yeah, that was it great. Was, um, we had some bad shows. Stayed in a great holiday inn while and we were there. <laughs> there was there was nothing bad about that. In fact, we were wondering about that show because it was a smaller town, but no, it was a good show. Good show. Yeah. It was all right. I mean, we always liked going into places where um we 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 were wondering like uh, is anyone gonna show up? And then we go there and we're like, wow, we're we're in like a smaller place and there are people actually showing up. Um, another city that was similar to that was my hometown of Grand Rapids, Michigan. You know, we went there and I was like, this is my hometown. And I wasn't expecting a lot. And, you know, it went, people showed up, it, people showed up and it went well. I mean, it was just the way it, way it was then. I mm -hmm. mean, I mean, music wasn't, I don't remember that show being any less populated mm -hmm. than, than maybe what we did in Oklahoma city or Richmond, yeah. Virginia or places like that. The other small cities. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, we were appreciative at the time. We were very appreciative. I yeah, mean, any show was a good show, really. I mean, <laughs> we played that show in the middle of, we did 27 shows in 30 nights. And we sure. thought, wow, this is amazing that we are actually able to be booked 27 shows out of 30 nights. And two shows were canceled. Yeah. So it was originally 29 out of 30 shows. And the two were canceled because of conflict, in, you know, 
conflicts with other shows. I mean, I still remember back here in um, Tempe, Arizona in the, the early 80s. I mean, I was I felt fortunate to play the be the first band on a Tuesday night bill. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, so when you're out touring and you're the headlining band and you're playing across the country and you, you have a booking agent that is able to get you a full schedule like that, that's success. Especially considering the fact that I, I to a certain degree, I guess maybe we were uh, trailblazers because we were um, doing what the, the dark wave bands of today are doing All right now. But we were doing it at a time where we'd go into clubs and we'd have to deal with house sound men that were like, where's your drummer? <laughs> uh, we don't have a drummer. What? There's what? only two of you? Where are your amps? We don't have amps. We submix on stage and we have drum machine and it was a, a struggle struggle a lot of times if we stuck it out and the fact that we did so many shows like in 95 and 96 97 and with the exception of being target practice at the typo negative tour <laughs> it all went pretty well <laughs> you should have just named your drum machine like sisters of mercy or Godflesh did <laughs> sisters yeah. of mercy but then dr avalanche was their drummer yeah. <laughs> So no, I, we appreciate that you brought us into music. Yeah, that's I cool. Mean, that's cool. Um, that was like a dream come true at that time. But you, you guys, you originally started Lycia as an avenue uh, to sort of suss out your, your your ideas outside of the bands you had been playing in at the time back in like the early '80s, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. Correct. Yep. What What sort of music were you playing at that time? Um probably what you would expect. Um, my first band I was in, I started in late 1981 and I went into it. Well, let me backtrack a little bit. The Lycia concept started in 1981. Um, I got a, I graduated high school in 1981 and I was totally just enamored with post-punk music, but I still had all my interest in the stuff I had from the seventies, a lot of prog rock stuff. So I read a lot of music magazines at the time and I was really fascinated with all the new music technologies that were coming out in the late seventies, early eighties, you know, uh, multi-track recorders, like the, the four track and eight track cassette players and the rack mount effects and drum machines and arpeggiators on synth and all this stuff that just seems so exotic. And, you know, I've always been a very aloof person. So the, the concept of maybe, getting a band that was really heavily um, relying on technology seemed very appealing to me, but I just could not find people that were on the same, same wavelength as, as I was at the time. And so I, 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 I started a band and I just took people that were answering ads. And I guess my first band would be sort of half new wave, half post-punk you know, I was always trying to push, like, I want to sound like the first psychedelic furs album, or I want to sound like, um, closer or, you know, the bands or the first killing joke album, the, the stuff that I was listening to at the time. And I was finding musicians that were into, I guess the, the initial stage of MTV new wave, you know, yeah. well, I remember the, the drummer, he was a older, he was like 10 years older than me. And, he was telling me all these bands that he liked and it was all the typical stuff in the late seventies, REO speedway. <laughs> and I was just like, okay, this guy's not going to work. But then he said, what I also like split ends, split ends, the, the new wave band. Yeah. And I thought, well, they're all right. So yeah, come on over. And he also told me that he was 
interested in electronic drums because he liked King Crimson of that era, you know? No so way. Okay, this guy, I, we can work with this guy. So um, from 1981 up until 1987, I was in and out of different um, bands that were um, either, you know, modern music of the, the 80s. and But I always wanted it to be more along the lines of what Lycia became. And so it was sort of the running joke because, you know, you're a musician and so you know what it's like. You're in a band, a band breaks up, a couple people form a new band. It's like you recycle the same people over and over. You know, you this guy leaves, two years later he comes back. Everyone's just trying to find a way. And the running joke amongst maybe the six or seven musicians that I regularly worked with is, oh, you can use that for your side or solo project. <laughs> you know, the weird stuff. It's like, oh, I'm like, here, I got this great idea for a song. Oh, okay. Well, we don't really like that, but you could use it for your side and solo project. Can you well, turn off those effects? Yeah, the <laughs> effects. Well, after a run from 1981 till 19, early 1988 of that, and I was just so frustrated that nothing ever happened. I was going to quit music. And I thought, wait a minute, maybe it's time to give my side and solo project the full attention as opposed to just to writing these songs in my room and daydreaming. <laughs> and that's how Lycia really got going. But, um, uh, you know, I don't know if anyone really understood what I, what I wanted back then, but then again, in all fairness to them, I kept it pretty private and quiet. I was, I was unsure. I thought if I brought my ideas that they would think that it wasn't good. And, if you think about what Lycia did in the early 90s, I don't really know how that would have meshed in 1982 mm -hmm. or 83. It was slower. You know, when you would go to play um, club shows at the time at like the, the the new wave clubs, it was all about music that was danceable. But if you went to the underground places, it was just about being weird and strange. And I was, what I envisioned was somewhere in between those two places. And because you're in between, you don't fit in either side. Right. Yeah. But what's interesting is you flash forward to especially uh, in Flickers and Casa Luna, and there are danceable elements now. Mm -hmm. They're a lot more tasteful, but there are those danceable elements that I think bring a, a different element to to the song dynamic that that drives it and it's it's not the focal point but it is a fulcrum and i i found that uh particularly appealing i think in in flickers uh it almost felt like the beginning of uh, a new era of lycia and i think castellana just continues in that although they are very different records there you can tell it's in the same mindset um, I, I don't feel the same sense of despair and that's a great thing. It, it's almost like watching a human being transcend their own misery and, <laughs> you know, kind of looking backward, like, yes, I can still feel like that, but this is, this is what I think about it now. And this is how mm -hmm. I present it now. And mm -hmm. it's a hell of a ride. I mean, you've had, uh, unbelievable career and there's not a stinker in the lot <laughs> well thank, thank you. you thank you for that um there's a song on in flickers that i think explains everything in absolute detail first of all 
in Flickers and Casa Luna are the, the two releases that I'm most satisfied with because they're the two releases that I absolutely refuse to do any sense of compromise. Zero, zilch. Um, the past albums have, had all, have all had compromise to a degree. Maybe not my solo album or Quiet Moments because you know Quiet Moments is to a certain degree a solo album. But I'm a, while I'm focused on my vision, I, I'm, I always want to, I'm a people pleaser. I always want everyone to be happy. And so a lot of times in the past, I would let people talk me into things that just didn't, my gut reaction said wasn't right. And you go with it. And then years down the line, you're like, why didn't I just go with my gut, my gut feeling, my gut feeling. Um, within Flickers, I made the, the decision that this is going to be an album that 100% goes with my gut. And when we were working on that album, there were question marks from the different members of the band because I was pitching things that seemed strange and untraditional. <laughs> I mean, a song like The Path and She and 34 Palms, there's no bass guitar in those songs. It's drums, guitar, and vocals. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then bringing, you know, the more dance oriented songs. But there's a song on in Flickers called Re Rewrite, which really explains everything. If you read the lyrics to Rewrite, it's me basically saying, okay, I'm doing it the way that it always should have been done. And the way that I have peace in my own mind about my back catalog is I know with all my heart that if I would have done every album going on my gut instinct that right now I'd be sitting here saying, I'm content with what I've done. <laughs> the things that I question about my past always comes to the fact that somebody else came in and said, your vision is not right. We need to do this. And I'm talking about whether it's people in the band or external people, labels, fans, friends, whatever. Um, I think of an album like A Day in the Star Corner. Mm. The whole entire time I was recording Quiet Moments, I thought to myself, if only I would have followed the vision of, of Quiet Moments when I was doing A Day in the Star Corner, A Day in the Star Corner very well could be Lycia's greatest release ever. But there was a lot of outside influence that kept me from reaching what I wanted with that album. And you add on top of that, just crippling insecurities. You know, I was just, I was, I, I, I think in the nineties, I felt a lot, a lot of times like a pawn, like, like the music, like I would put the ideas out and then other people would mold it. And it was frustrating to me. And this second life of Lycia, I refused to go down that path. And I think because of that reason, Lycia is seen as a much more expansive band, a, a, a genre defying band. I don't want to be in any genre. I just, I like tons of music all across the board. And I just want Lycia to reflect that. But rewrite was my way of saying, I finally have peace with my past. Hmm. Because maybe the albums don't sound the way that I wanted them, but in my head, I know what they are supposed to sound like. And that gave me peace. And I wrote a song about it. That's incredible. Is that why I, I feel 
at, like after all of that, after a day in the star corner, it feels like a, a tear is more present. Could that possibly be a, a part of that as well? Uh, a part of the focusing the, sh- the vision or the vision being less focused? The, the vision being compromised by exterior elements. No, nothing to do with Tara. Tara has been a, a, a dream. I've Oh, got- no, no. What I yeah. meant to say was, was anyone stifling Tara? No, there was, there was no, no. Actually, yeah. initially, well, with 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 Burning Circle, with her singing on two songs, everyone thought it was cool. With Cold, I mean, how? I mean, Cold is, I think, our best album of the '90s. And um, no one complained about Cold, but I think when Estrella came out, there was a lot of resistance. But yeah, I mean, I remember reading reviews that I ruined the band. Oh God, I I couldn't disagree more. I mean, that, no. that, that doesn't it doesn't bother me because it's like as someone who is fans of other bands, you know, you get it in your head what you like, and then when that changes, I get that. I mean, Jarbo went through the same thing. People with swans, yeah, absolutely. He ruined the band, so I'm in good company. It's fine, <laughs> but you know. And let's just be let's is. just be honest. I mean, when John Fair and I were working on Lycia before we ever ever had a uh, a contract or any kind of, I mean, we were like completely obscure here in, in Arizona. We were trying to recruit a female singer. We always wanted Lycia from the very beginning. Always wanted to have that male vocal, female vocal. Um, we approached uh, uh, this woman that we knew and. She seemed interested, and then she backed out, and so then the band just moved on. And um, after Day in the Start Corner, there was another female vocalist that I was thinking about approaching. And um, then shortly after that, I met Tara, and I approached her. And so this was part of my, you know, I visualized it at some point, and I didn't care it, it, when it, when Estrella came out and people complained. I'm like, well, this is this album is realized this is one of the albums that was realized in the 90s and i was very very happy with that when i complain about albums of the 90s and feeling like it was compromised that's not an album that i felt was compromised at all though there were compromises on not with the music not with the music with the artwork and external crap external stuff but in terms of the music itself no not at all um but i mean we were still coming through this stage i mean I'm, it's it'd be really easy for me just to point fingers at people, but I mean, if I'm gonna point fingers at anyone, I'm pointing at myself. You know, right. the second round, I've taken control of my destiny. You know, I always felt not worthy in the '90s, and so I just was like, I felt fortunate to have anything that we had. And if like some taking scraps was fine. If somebody like gave their suggestion and I disagreed with it, and if they were like a little bit more assertive than me, I would just be like, okay, well, I guess so. Um, but no, no, my <laughs> advice to younger bands is to stick with your vision because it's your vision. Yeah. And just stick with what, I mean, it's better to fail sticking to your vision than to succeed and compromise. And it then really regret is. it later. It, it is because it's really hard to write that ship once it's sailing. Yeah. And I mean, there's a lot of stuff from the early days that I have problems with, but I don't like to bring them out because because then people will know what you're talking. I don't about. want to point They'll out look for it. Yeah, they will look for it. I mean, mm-hmm. people like the albums. Plus, they you like don't want. Yeah, you don't want to ruin somebody else's. Like that's the that's my favorite album, and then all of a sudden you're hearing all this negative stuff about it, and then you're like, oh. Yeah. 
And you're like, oh, I thought the sun shined out of their ass on that one. And yeah, yeah, yeah. picking it apart. <laughs> like, like, I don't want to hear Robert Smith picking disintegration apart. Like, oh, well, no, then I, I would just turn, I, I'd turn the volume <laughs> off. Pornography <laughs> and disintegration, uh, they, they do no wrong. <laughs> Don't don't look at the thing I just read a couple days ago. Oh, I know, I know. I actually I saw that too. I did. Yeah, read don't, it. I, don't read it. I saw the headline and I didn't open it up. Because because I am <laughs> I am similar. There are albums that I really love, and I know that the people that created them have issues with them. Mm -hmm. I'm like, don't tell me. Yeah. This album means something to it's me. Perfect. And so I always take that into account. And so, like with some of these reissues, I'm just like, okay, I know what people. There's an emotional attachment and it's done. I can't rewrite history. So just, just put it out there and move forward and work on the new music and make sure that from this point on, you're doing what you want. And I feel really good that from fifth son on, we've just done what we wanted. And um, uh, I, I feel, I think I feel more content with this era than the first era though, you know, I think there's some good songs from the first era, but oh, absolutely, from, there's but some I, <laughs> some good songs. But I I feel your interplay is 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 more of a dichotomy and less a juxtaposition. You know, it, it weaves so perfectly together. I I can't imagine anyone having had any sort of issue with it. But then again, I I never really paid attention to what people in any scene said about right. anything. Uh, <laughs> sometimes to my detriment, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, you're better off not. No, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know how to follow. Well, I mean, up. there it's was even, good. I mean, there was even tension in the band. I mean, you know, we all three, us and Dave, lived together, and there was this misconception that I was controlling shit. That I had the like he he thought that I was writing songs, like like Mike and I were hiding in our bedroom writing songs. I've never written a Lycia song in my life. Like I don't, Yoko? <laughs> I don't, I don't offer suggestions to him. Really. I don't do anything. So there was like this weird, even misconception in the band that led to us not speaking to each other for a long time. And you know, whatever. So it's good now though. Everything's fantastic. Everything's now, now we're like BFFs. It's great. But you know, of course we were all young and dumb too. So that was part of it. But yeah, so <clears throat> I don't know. That must have made touring in very small vehicles very, oh very. God. Yeah. So I, I was going to ask you about the growing pains when you were included in Lycia, and I guess you just answered my question without my having to ask it. Yeah, it was. It was. <laughs> I don't know. You know, it, it it was a lot of fun though too. So, but yeah, I mean, it was all of a sudden not, there's this other person in the band, you know. And you were a fan prequel. His girlfriend. So, <laughs> it, you know, it was awkward. He, he probably <laughs> felt like he couldn't be too mean to me or, or, you know, whatever, which I'm a big girl. I can take it anyways. But, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure it had to have been weird for him, for him because it was Mike and Dave. And then all of a sudden I'm in the band touring with them and we all live together. And it must have felt like them against me for him. You know what I mean? Like, yeah two against one, which it never was that way at all, ever. But I could see where he would get per that perception. But, you know, we've since talked about it and, like, laugh about how yeah, ridiculous we definitely laugh about it now. And, you know, because just it's stupid. It's very high school. I, and not, not from Mike. Me and Dave, we didn't talk to each other. And it was just a whole stupid thing. But, you know, I love Dave. 
it's great. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's awesome that he he's back. We're probably going to work. Dave and I are probably going to do a project together. That's so. the the strange irony because <laughs> there was at po different points there was tension between Tara and Dave and Tara and John, and now it looks like there's a potential that she might be doing stuff with, with them both of them without me as like just so, for on their side projects. And so yeah. everything is really good amongst the four of us now. Yeah. I mean, if is. we only could find the elusive Will Welsh, um, <laughs> who sort of disappeared in like, 20 plus years ago. He just, he just so sort of disappeared into the ether. Yeah. Actually the last time I saw him is 1997. We were playing a show here in town and he, showed up to a show and we saw him standing there and uh, three songs in, I just saw him walk out the door. <laughs> he made a show it's of like, his like, walking it's, off. It's like, yeah, he just like Elvis has left the building yeah. and no one's ever heard from him since. I mean, he took his ball and went home and that was yeah. it. I, mean, um, <laughs> I think he wanted Mike to know like, yeah. Bye. So, I mean, if, if there was any way that I could like fix that, fix up things like that and have him come back and be part, I would be a happy camper that all five members of Lycia were back on board because there was a time where I didn't think that Lycia, like John or Dave would ever be back on board, but you know, everything is really good with the four of us yeah. now. And maybe it's because we're older, but I mean, we're, we're all good. We're all good right now. Now, if we could just get over our weird social anxieties and could like go play some shows together or something. Uh, I, <laughs> I can't leave the house. I don't know about you two. Yeah, same. <laughs> I, uh, I, I daydream about that, but the impossibilities of that on so many levels. I mean, everyone in the band has their uh, weird hangups, their hangups, their <laughs> issues, their medical stuff. And on top of it, I mean, Lycia has, Lycia has a sound, but st stylistically we're all over the place and try to, to make it all work. It's, you know, it just, it's a, it's a, it would be a planning nightmare. <laughs> Especially since we're all in, you know, different states and Yeah. Some, nevertheless, dream is free, right? Some <laughs> very good friends of mine, the band Neurosis, who did an album with Jarbo. Yeah. Uh, they live there's not one member of that band that lives in the same state. Not one. Really? They get cool. they get together, they create these psychedelic demonic explosions of sound and then go their separate ways again now you <laughs> so said, you can do it yeah i know we can do it because i mean we do it with our albums but sure you, you mentioned that band you know josh graham yes yeah josh graham is a is an old friend of ours from tempe That's in amazing. fact the burning circle tour he was going to be one of the musicians that we brought along yeah that yeah, and then it just didn't work out. It didn't work out because of a lot of different reasons, but he actually that was going to be that typo tour. Yeah, we were type <laughs> before we did the Halloween typo negative tour. They had asked us to do a full U.S. tour opening, and it fell through. But um, we were looking for other musicians to help us, and through a friend of a friend, we met Josh, and um, we asked him along, and we actually briefly had a side project with him too <laughs> that we recorded some songs and dave gallus um accidentally deleted the files <laughs> when the files were deleted the project ended yeah. but the project was was to include tara wasn't involved I wasn't. but all the four member other four members of lycia including will welsh another friend of ours um no, it was just the four of us and Josh. It was going to be the four of us and Josh, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh -huh. Yeah. 
that's uh, one of my i always said one of my dream tour packages would have been lycia neurosis and the neurosis crowd would go for that that would have been fun you can, you can believe that because people who listen to neurosis are normally either drugged out crust punks or <laughs> me <laughs> and yeah, people like I, me I, like lycia i tell you it, it really was a saving grace for lycia um mm -hmm. You know, we, we spent the decade of the 2000s pretty much stagnant. Well, we did some reissues and did some solo stuff. Here, in terms of the creative aspect, it was dead for almost 10 years. And um, it took um, a guy, his name was Rich um, Rich Lauren Balling of um, <laughs> Handmade Bird Records. He had constantly pitched me for like about two years about um, doing a cold reissue on vinyl. And I was just like, I'm, I'm done. Lycia's done. No one cares about it. And he pitched it. And it was the smartest thing we ever did to agree to do that because he single-handedly exposed Lycia to that whole crowd that you're talking about, that mm -hmm. neurosis crowd, the, the post-metal crowd, the doom metal crowd, the um, mm -hmm. e experimental, noisy electronic stuff, the the dark dance you know, what, whatever, I forgot what they called it, but the darker styles of dance music. Witch house stuff? Witch house stuff. Witch house, we, yeah. we were completely oblivious to that stuff. Still and, pretty much are. <laughs> and he he um, reissued cold on vinyl, and immediately we, we got traction in these new scenes, including this brand new dark wave scene that seemed to be evolving at the time. And it really became uh, a catalyst for us having this second level of our career, because I'm telling you in, in 2008, we, I, I thought we were relics. We were done and there was no interest. And a couple years later, three, four years later, suddenly there's a whole brand new bunch of interest. And it's led right to this day. I mean, the label that we're currently working for right now, and you know, we did Ionian and Casaluna is Avant Garde Records in metal Milan. label. It's a metal label. Yeah, I'm telling you, the doors that they've opened for us is a continuation of the doors that Rich opened for us, and the the sense of appreciation is unbelievable. It's 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 a much more natural place for us. And mm -hmm. even though my metal background consists of me listening to Judas Priest. The same time I was listening to the Sex Pistols in high school. <laughs> sure, I absolutely love the fact that Lycia is constantly morphing and exposing ourselves to, to new places. I think it's absolutely crazy that these metal magazines, these hardcore dark metal magazines, are reviewing Casa Luna and saying Galatea is their favorite song. <laughs> Galatea so was a song that was influenced by the Associates. Yeah, <laughs> a, a super poppy english wave yeah. band yeah and I, I i think it's wonderful that we're able to to present a song coming from that angle and it being appreciated by fans of mayhem yeah <laughs> but, but if you think about it that this time period although i bemoan it constantly because i think that you know having started in the mid 80s late 80s going to punk shows I'm I'm always uh, wistful for the past. It's better now than it's ever been. Yep, I agree. You can truly be whatever you want. You could you can be yeah. in in a mayhem or or uh, any black metal band T-shirt 
and listening to Diamanda Galas and you know and, and there's no there's no disconnect nothing pulls yeah. the pin out you could be a straight edge kid and have makeup on and go and see London After Midnight and it's not really yeah a thing anymore right I, if I were a teenager now I I probably wouldn't have become the person I became but I'd have been a lot more comfortable. <laughs> Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> me too yeah i think Without people are a lot less judgy now of superficial stuff than back in the day well like i said back in the early 80s when i played you know my bands would go play these shows and then if you weren't danceable the new waivers they wouldn't even listen to you and if you played the punk clubs if you even remotely looked like you were mtv they wouldn't listen to you mm. whereas now i absolutely love it that it's come one come all Mm-hmm. You know, um, bands, this, this, this merging of genres is, is amazing. I think it's made music really healthy and, um, uh, I, I feel insanely thankful because if it wasn't for this, there wouldn't be a, I see a second life. Mm -hmm. there, there just would not be. And the fact that we get people, you know, we are social media people contact us and this person will be totally into doom metal. And then the next person is totally into like synth pop of the eighties mm -hmm. and they, they like Lycia and I have a very short attention span. That's why Lycia will do an electronic album then do an acoustic album. And so this is, this is where I wish I was 20 years old right now. Yeah. Because but we this, just tore nonstop. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Minus, minus, COVID. Co minus COVID. I mean, if we were in our early 20s now, I would be setting up for nonstop, nonstop touring. I wouldn't even have a house. No. <laughs> get a storage facility that you could sleep in a couple days a year <laughs> when, you, when you're back to get your stuff. My mom's basement or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just so much better now. And it's, it's mind boggling that it wasn't that way before. Like it, it, things seemed so segregated before. It was. Know? And it, now it's just like not at all. The, yeah. There was so much gatekeeping uh, in, yeah. the, in the, the late eighties, right. early nineties that if you didn't pass a uniform check to any individual show going to, you were fucked. You were there out. There were some shows that we would go play and they had dress codes. And we were the only people that were allowed in that weren't matching the dress and I, I mean, I feel like I'm contrary enough that I purposely would look like an idiot that night because <laughs> I can't stand that crap. Like, I, I hated that stuff. You know, and we used to play sometimes in like, you know, you'd play like a city like Houston, right? And all the cool scenesters were there and they're always right up in the front, but they, they're talking the entire time you're playing. And then you'd look over and there'd be this kid that looked like he was just a college kid or like a metal kid or whatever. And it was like, those were the people we would hone in on because they were there obviously because they have appreciation for music where the other people are like, oh, well, this is the goth thing to do on a Friday night. So this is where I'm going tonight, you know? And it was like so irritating at times, but I'm just glad it is the way it is now. And people seem so much more chill about everything i mean people listen to rap and they listen to 
metal and mm -hmm. it's all just this big thing and like nobody cares i mean maybe they do and i'm just not exposed to that but no this is this is the cares. dream of the 90s coming into fruition because mm -hmm. I, I vividly remember going to see public enemy open up for sisters of mercy i remember yeah. that tour yeah, that tour well. Yeah, it had only everyone else had the foresight to see that. Oh, these two things are not that dissimilar, especially Public right. Enemy's production. My God, right? But, I mean, it's all electronic music, right? You know, it is. Throw some guitars. That's on how it. I met Will Welsh, um, late '80s, just prior before, just maybe a year before I started using the Lycia name. I was in a band. Um, we needed a bass player. Um, met this guy. We had a mutual love of Killing Joke, and that was mm. really the only um, common thing we had. He liked, um, you know, speed metal <laughs> and hardcore rap and industrial music and Killing Joke. And I liked post punk and Killing Joke and atmospheric and ambient music. And I asked him to join the band. And um, I dug, I completely dug the fact that he was bringing all these different influences in. I think that makes music more interesting, though. Yeah. Because everyone has a different, coming from a slightly different angle, you know? Yeah. Well, Terry, you come from a no-wave angle almost because of your love for the swans and, and things of that nature. That's that's in you. And yeah. You're, you're bringing that to Lycia. So there, there's, a, there's a grit that I think you present that maybe people don't honestly hear i hear it yeah good I, good i'm glad because i heard it, is, it too that's why i asked for it is call. funny because um i get irritated at my voice sometimes because i think it sounds too pleasant and you can ask him like when i did the vocals for um do you bleed i was like it sounds too nice like i wanted it to sound really aggressive but I, you know, I, I'm only capable of what I'm capable of. But like, people always assume like that I'm into like ethereal music and like stuff like that. And I mean, I like some of that, but I lean more towards heavier music like Godflesh and Swans and that kind of stuff. And I don't. It's so it's so funny to me because I get tend to get lumped in with like pretty female vocals, and I don't see that at, as what I do ever. Well, like, you're you're more vocally on. Do you bleed? That's to me more like a a more vocally proficient Lydia Lunch, because hmm. there's that narrative. You're punching a narrative. Well, thank you. Like a um, it's it's almost like spoken word poetry shot through. The yeah. prism of, of of a human being who actually has the pipes to sing, and, and <laughs> that's, that that's what that's what I gleaned from it. But you know, I, I sit and intellectual. I over intellectualize everything. It's probably why I need to be medicated. <laughs> I like I like that comparison because yeah. I mean, your wavelengths are are meshing with my wavelengths because I mean, this is the kind of stuff that I always envision with Lycia. In fact. Tara and I were talking earlier today, you know, there's this perception of what Lycia is. And I'm like, okay, you got to go back to when John and I, John Fair and I were hammering out this music. We were trying to meld Big Black with Cocktoo Twins. Mm. And if you listen to our early demos, that's what it is. Mm. It has atmosphere, but it also has this noisy, you know, dissidence to it all. Yeah. And that's what we, you know, we were trying to do. We, you know, 
bring in a lot of different influences and not trying to just fit into something. Well, and for well, me, we didn't, we didn't even care about that. Right. We're just doing, doing, doing what, what we, you're doing, just doing what you do. And yeah. Know. And for me, like when I first started singing my two huge, well, I'm going to give three huge influences. It was Jarbo, hmm. Katie Jane Garside and Robert Smith. Those were the three vocalists that I related to the most. Now, let me tell you why I asked you to be in the band, because what I saw was, as he said, the connection to the whole no wave stuff, which I was always a fan of, but also that whole world serpent type stuff. Mm. Uh, well, yeah, that was a huge influence so on me too. That was something that wasn't really reflected in Lycia. And I thought, well, I've always wanted to have a female vocalist also to be in the band. And it would be cool to bring that kind of element in. So when I heard your initial demos and the quirkiness of them all, I thought, okay, well, I'm not a big fan of the demos. <laughs> I can hear in your vocals what I'm I want in in Lycia. Yeah. I should upload those sometime just because they're so off the charts. <laughs> they're very quirky, to say the least, but um, I really could hear this tonal quality that I was looking for. I, I never wanted to have a female vocalist that sounded ethereal or pretty or nice. I wanted something with character. <laughs> um, I go back to, you know, you talked about the punk rock days and the pre-punk and glam rock. It's about being a, a musician that plays, that has, has character and not just, you know, relying on some kind of predetermined template sound yeah that so like many that bands i think I, I so many bands in the like the 90s had this sound and and sometimes you couldn't tell the bands apart mm. you still can't to a degree yeah, and it's important like the bands that i really love like does anyone sound like the doors no no one sounds like the doors the doors were the doors <laughs> well lycia to be lycia and when i had a female vocalist i wanted it to be I want people to hear this voice and say, that's, that's the girl from Lycia. Not just fill in the blanks here. Here's just an ethereal vocalist that sounds like any other ethereal vocalist. I want it to be, you know, you hear Bjork, you hear Bjork, you know exactly what, who that is, mm -hmm. you know? And I wanted that. I didn't, I, I wanted it to be original. And I also, most importantly, I wanted it to fit into this sort of, crazy undefinable Lycia path that I lay out that I can't define it, but it, when I heard her vocals, I know I thought this, this could work and it did work because she came out and um, really with no rehearsal whatsoever. That was one take. Did the, the songs for burning circle and we're me and Dave were like, okay, sounds good. You got <laughs> it. Wait, wait, that was one take. Yeah. We did that in one take. Both yeah. songs. Yeah. Yeah, we're we're old school um, back then, at least. It was analog. Go in the studio and just practice our parts and get it. Unfortunately, the Lycia of the modern age um, is, you know, it, the, the 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 studio wizardry. Ah! No, the, the home studio stuff really ah! helps us at this stage here. Well, you, you know, something as much as I like to romanticize the analog, and as you can see, I prefer my vinyl because I'm one of those. Uh, it's a pain in the ass. I'd rather record at home myself. I, yeah. I, you know, I do some, I do power electronics music on my own as well. And, 
I used to do that to cassette. That gets expensive, and you're better off. Yeah. 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 There's there's the um, culprit right there. She's she's a dog that packs a loud barking punch. Wow. To me, there's numerous recording sessions that have been um, interrupted by her or (laughs) one of her pet comrades. Yeah. Before her, it was cats. Yeah, we used to have cats that would just meow nonstop. You hear them know. in the background. In fact, if you listen real closely mm-hmm. on some of the albums, you can hear a couple cats of meows and ankles, here and there. ankles cracking. Yeah. <laughs> and birds singing yeah. in the backyard. Yep. Yep. Well, uh, we have dogs, cats, children. We've got it all here as well. So. <laughs> so. Uh, so speaking of children, not to cut you off, but I thought this was hilarious. So my, our son... He, you know, school just started here and he got a new water bottle to take to school with them. And he stuck Lycia stickers all over them. And so um, I said to him, I go, did anybody ask you what those were? And he's like, yeah, I told him that my parents are in a band. And I'm like, what did they say? He said that I was lying. That I was a stupid liar. And I'm like, well, they can Google your name. Because I find it hilarious that if you Google his name, he's got like a a, a page that he gets credit for his a discogs. Yeah, page. he's got a discogs page where he his, and I'm he's nine. Yeah, and I, I that hilarious. I'm like, just tell him to Google your name, Dirk. It's in there. That's incredible. <laughs> it cracks me up. God. But they're like, he, but yeah, they said I'm just a stupid liar. I'm like, well, <laughs> whatever. Are we gonna Are we gonna hear from Violet and Roman again? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I've got one book completely written. I just need to edit it and upload it. And then another one is about a quarter of the way through. Yeah, I'm never going to stop doing that. Okay, good. I I, I I hadn't heard anything about it for a while. And yeah. uh, I, was, I was left in the lurch. I just wanted to make sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I love writing. It, there's just no time. There's so much to do. And, you know, the damn day job hogs up all of our creative time. <laughs> We'd probably have like three more albums and 15 books if we didn't have these day jobs. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's hard juggling everything. It but is. I mean, we're oh, still yeah. moving forward. We got other things going. Yeah. We've got some other stuff percolating yeah. right now. Like really well, percolating. Well, I, I, I don't feel comfortable really. Ex- well, hey, you I, brought it up. I always feel like I'm going to hex stuff, but. On Casa Luna, there's a couple old songs revisited. We might there might be some more exploration of some more, other older songs. Um, and there's the things with Avant Garde have gone so well that there is another reissue that is a hundred percent going to happen this fall. And I'm I'm not going to say what it is, but I'm going to say it by not saying it. <laughs> Ionia celebrated an anniversary this year and it was released. Another album's going to celebrate celebrate another notable anniversary this year and it looked good of uh, a full vinyl treatment and a CD treatment on Avant Garde this fall. We've already I it's already, say a word. It's it's already been sent to sent to them. We've already picked the vinyl colors. Everything is ready to go. It's gonna be so pretty. And the announcement will probably come <laughs> soon. Um, but it's gonna be so soon, I'll just say it. It's gonna be cool. <laughs> All that, and you're like, it's cold. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I'd surmised as much, but I, I can I can pull the pin right out of that uh, in editing if you if you. No, really no, it's gonna be. I, it's I mean, things are so casual with us in Avant Garden. They're so cool to work with. They're awesome. Um, 
Um, it's going to happen. Um, there'll be more reissues after that, but you know, you got to try to space them out. Um, I need to space them out because my end of the work is ends up being more than I thought. And I go to my job. And well, and they're so and, fast that it's like you say, do you want to do such? Yes. Yeah. Send it out. You know, you hear about the infamous um, delay in vinyl. Yeah. yeah. Not avant-garde. They got, they got preferential. <laughs> I don't treatment. know. Yeah. They've got I the mean, hookup. I'll just tell you the funny story about Casa Luna. Um, we promised it to one label. That label didn't work out for no need to go on private stuff. Then we went, we took it to another <laughs> label and they, um, had issues so <laughs> that was in march being very diplomatic that was in march or early april so we somehow navigated to avant-garde and it came out in june so I do the math i mean from the time that it wasn't even a deal with them to it actually being out. on vinyl in people's hands um it happens quick they're awesome um so um it's it's a great place to be it, yeah. it really is. If I wish, I wish it was a place that we could have found a lot earlier because I think if we would have found that at an we'd early, probably be living in Italy right now. We would. <laughs> it, well, it's by far the biggest label we've ever been on, and it's uh, they're you know, awesome. Um, I, it, it's 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 regretful that we never got over to Europe. Um, like I said, we're always out of sync and. Right at the time when Europe was offered to us for touring, um, we had I had some health issues, and then things just sort of crumbled after that, and so we never had the opportunity. Um, so, but anyways, I'm not complaining. Yeah. I mean, things work out the way they do, and um, everything happens for a reason. And um, my we're mom's a, famous. We're in a good spot right now, and we'll we'll just ride it until we're not in a good ride spot. Ride the wave until it. Yes, yeah, you know, I've I, I felt for a long time that we're sort of like on borrowed time. I mean, think about this. We, we're in a band. We have uh, this relatively good time in the 90s and it just goes away. And to have a second wave is I, I can't it's even awesome. I, I can't even tell you how like humbled I am by the whole thing. I mean, to have a second wave and it, it's it's just it's hard to believe. It's bizarre. Like, it's bizarre that, and it came from places that were completely unexpected. Yeah. You know, like this whole metal thing. Like, how how are we on the same label as Mayhem or whatever? Like, I don't. Well, you know. <laughs> it's fucking amazing. Yeah, it's. I, I feel, don't get it. I like, it's. Fortunate. Well, the metal, the metal people love you guys. Yeah. I, I think that that's probably where it's coming from. I mean, very briefly, before he unfortunately passed away, Pete Steele lived in my area. And I would run into Pete in bars. And he he would talk about you guys. I mean, and it was not a big surprise because you, you were on their final album. And the touring together, but people of his ilk uh, and of his station were always pretty open about the fact that, yeah, we love Lycia. Like he they're sweet. He was so good to us. Like in it, and it's bizarre because like we've talked about it so many times, him just mentioning Lycia casually in an interview was as much press, like as much promo as sometimes the label did. Like, 
it's it's bizarre. I mean, to this day, I'll get emails from people saying, "I got into Lycia because of Peter," you know, and it's he opened. I'll doors. be forever grateful to him. He opened that. doors for us, but I mean, I often think about the way the music is right now. Mm -hmm. It's everything that he envisioned back then and wanted back then, but it wasn't back then. Yeah. It was not that way back then. He wanted it to be that way, but it wasn't. And he he was sort of a um, lone, lone figure. And um, he I know from talking to him, he was very frustrated that he couldn't explore that kind of style himself more. He wanted to explore it more, but he felt it was going to be difficult because of the climate of 90s metal. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I... Man, he would be thriving now. With he would be thriving now. Oh, I mean, yeah. he sort of opened the door for a lot of what's happening now. Um, you wouldn't have the Deftones or any of those bands. No. I mean, none of that would have been happening. Right. Right. Um, yeah. They're it basically a new wave too. <laughs> I mean, I don't know where it all started, but um, you know, I, I I've heard rumblings about the tour that they did with Pantera and Godflesh, mm -hmm. and that it was during that tour that somebody brought up Lycia. I don't know if it was Justin Broderick or if it was Peter Steele, but I know that it it percolated to members of Pantera because we've heard things that yeah. there were people in Pantera that liked Lycia, which is to me, I'm like, <laughs> I'm like this guitar minimalist <laughs> uh, during the nineties. I would literally, I stripped my, like in the eighties, I actually played guitar, but by the nineties, <laughs> I stripped it down to almost nothing because the effects were just so overwhelming. If you try to play too much, it just drowns everything out. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, here's this band that is very technical and they're listening to me playing like one <laughs> string at a time, letting it ring out for like a second and then playing the next note. Yeah. But, um, well, just, just think about this for a minute though. Justin K. Broderick went from Godflesh to Jesu. And there are moments on Jesu records where I can sit there and my my wife loves Jesu. She's not even into this type of music, but she loves Jesu. And I say, that's Lycia. That's a Lycia part. You hear that? Mike Van Portfleet invented that. Just listen. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't think I don't think Justin would would uh, have any bones about admitting to that, but I I, I can definitely uh, I can definitely envision uh, little guys from Pantera listening to you guys. I just don't think they would have um, adopted the same sort of <laughs> <laughs> aesthetic. <laughs> it was just a strange spot for us because, I mean. I struggled in Arizona in nowhere bands. Like I said, being the first band on a Tuesday night, people laughing at you. <laughs> <laughs> and then it came around to doing Lycia. And the early people days, the early days of Lycia here, I often talk about that John Fair and I would sit there and we would, we both were sleep deprived. <laughs> we worked jobs and we would stay up all night working on music. And then when he'd leave, I would mix music. And we were always in a different state from various different things. And 
we used to always joke around that not even our friends liked what we were doing. <laughs> they didn't. It was an army of two. <laughs> we were here in Tempe, Arizona when Jangle Rock ruled and our friends didn't even like what we would like to say, listen to this new song as we were driving around to go to some party, put the tape on. And the song would literally play for like a second and they'd start talking about some dumbass thing. <laughs> like, okay, I understand what they think of this song now. And to think that you would go from the stage literally in about three or four years from, you know, like Ionia and Stark Corner were the most isolated times of my life. I recorded those albums in studio apartments by myself. I had no friends. I had no interaction. I didn't have a girlfriend. I had nothing. I would just go to work. I was like Winston Smith. I'd go to work, come home. I'd get really drunk and I'd work on music. And I would just sit there. And then I'd go to work the next day. And it was the same thing over and over. And I would listen to the music and I'd be like, okay, this is really clicking with what I want. But nobody liked it. And then Project picked up on it and they released it. And then suddenly, overnight, it changed. Everything changed. Ionia came out and everything changed literally in a month from going from nobody had any idea what I was doing to suddenly I'm getting like nonstop phone calls to do interviews on radio and fanzines. And I'm going up to record stores and seeing Ionia there and I'm seeing, you know, articles in Alternative Press and B-Side Magazine. And I'm like, what happened? How did this happen? I didn't follow the rules in any way or form. I'm not playing live. I'm I, I'm I'm completely socially inept. <laughs> uh, I'm not talking to anybody. I you know I'm I do interviews fine now because I'm just myself. Back then I was such a nervous wreck. People would interview me and I would literally stutter and stammer and I didn't know how to answer their questions. I must I was a wreck. I mean, <laughs> Start Corner is the result of me being just an emotional wreck. I always I always told people that's a desert album too. I mean, you're talking about isolation. I used to literally say this is the desert. This album, that's being that's the desert to me. That's what I would envision, and it makes complete sense that you were completely isolated at that point. Ionia and Stark Corner are both desert albums. They have different character. Ionia is um, here in Arizona in the summertime. We have a, a thing called the monsoon. It's not like the Indian monsoon. Um, it's a desert monsoon, which means we get moisture, we get afternoon thunderstorms and heavy rains, maybe one out of every 20 days. But it's different. It's something different. And so Ionia is a, a desert album of being in, up in the middle of the night and watching the distant thunderstorms. That's how I like to describe it. Stark Corner is a stark album of, you know, you're driving out in the middle of the desert and you see that abandoned filling station on the side of the road and you're like it's that, that thing it's is haunted. that thing is open <laughs> what is the guy that worked there is like what, where does he live what, what is he like yeah and so the central figure to start corner is that guy yeah he's that guy in that filling station in the middle of nowhere the mystery dude and he's just defeated on every front and he's just looking for that thunderstorm and that lightning to strike him you know of the body electric to be absorbed into the lightning into yeah. the nothingness yeah. of, of 
the universe. We just watched Pumpkinhead recently, and it reminds me of that guy's life. Like he just goes to his, yeah. sh his shop every day and does his grocery store stuff, and out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, I mean, to me, the epitome of the desert album is wide open spaces. Mm -hmm. That is literally going out into the desert, and it's twofold. One is that it's absolutely beautiful and you want to be in it forever. Two, it's the most repressive, isolating, lonely thing you can ever imagine. And it takes me back to what, what is the premise of Lycia? It's been the, the thing that's been with me the entire time, which is a tug of war, an existential side and a mysticist, mystic side on the other side, a mystical versus existential. It's a tug of war back and forth. Most of the time it goes to the existential side, but it drifts to the mystical side. And it's this, you never can find your place. You can't find it. And it's just this back and forth. And Stark Corner is the, is the perfect example of that. You have songs that are just like, Sorrow is her name. It's just like, it's, it's just the dark, one of the darkest things I've ever written. But then you have Wide Open Spaces, which is the most mystical thing I've ever written on the same album, only a couple tracks apart. There's always been a supernatural uh, element to those albums for me as well. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I having grown up in a town, I, I'm from a very small town, next to Music, where you guys played, Avoca, it was named after a horrific train wreck where hundreds of people Ooh. died right down the street from my house so yeah. uh I, I do believe in in supernatural to a degree and to me those two records really reeked uh, of that vibe i would get when i was walking home alone every single night with my walkman through that town on those railroad tracks the very same railroad tracks that is cool <laughs> yeah well, you're that that is cool those are definitely two haunted albums to me they're haunted. There's there's ghosts throughout that album, um, both of those albums. So I I love the fact yeah. when I hear a story like that, because that's ghosts. what we do music for. You also with bleak spirits, bleak as well. Um, the the vein record. Oh my god, that is to me that's also very haunted in a kind of different way. Mm -hmm. I think that falls in line because of that time period, perhaps. But yeah. it, it elicits that same emotion for me. That that there, there, yeah. that's a very Winston Smith. There, there's too. elements of uh, it's a continuation of Stark Corner to, to certain degrees, but the factory worker version. Um, there's two sides to Vane because it's the first album that Dave and I worked on together, and so you know Dave brought in his pieces that had his vibe, and my pieces definitely continued the. Star Corner vibe, which the, the, I think the two fundamental pieces would be Boiler Room and Weather Vane. Weather Vane sort of takes the continuation of what I was talking about, Star Corner, and taking it to the nth degree of just picturing this Weather Vane spinning around mm. and just this rusted out. The same guy, but he's like 70 years old and, and just his, his, his past has is is gone and he's just a relic and the boiler room is sort of coming from a different angle of like the same type of character but 
a factory worker. I, I grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. All my relatives worked at the auto factories and success was gauged by you graduate high school, you go to work in the auto factory and you spend your entire life working there in this horrible factory atmosphere and you buy stuff and you cheat on your wife and you drink and you, you get a boat and you get a boat and you do all this stuff, but there's no, there's no deepness to it. There's no emotionalness. There's no mysticism. There's nothing. It's just this, okay, I graduate high school. My life's over. I'm just going to go push a button at the factory for six days a week. And I'm going to go home and get shit faced every night because that's what you do. Mm -hmm. And the boiler room was that for me because, you know, I grew up in that atmosphere and, you know, working in music and, you know, struggling for all those years after Ionia came out, I was, I was such a naive, I was such a naive person. I thought, okay, Ionia came out and it's getting all this attention. I'm going to be making money. I can quit my job. It doesn't quite work out that way. And um, so you're getting these little royalty checks here and there. And, and it was the sort of the bleak realization that, wow, okay, I just had an album that is in all the magazines and getting good reviews, and yet I still have to work my job. And so what does my future hold for me now? And I wasn't, you know, I was like, what am I going to do? And so I'm taking these part-time job in factories, and I'm like, this sucks. Mm -hmm. How can anyone find any kind of self-worth working in an atmosphere like that? I mean, we are a number. I mean, we still work jobs, and we we position our stuff. Mm -hmm. I have a, a... you know, I work a job that a lot of people would consider to be a great job, but I still see it as that same damn boiler room. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not doing that. I'm doing something that my college education actually prepared me for, but it's the same boiler room to me. You know, yeah. I would, lucky you. I wish I were using my college education. I'm a plumber with an English literature degree. <laughs> Don't give up hope, man, because I'm a geographer that. For years and years and years when we weren't making money during the breaks, you know, because with music, you'd make money for a while and you could live off it. And then you'd have to go get a job. Mm-hmm. We'd go get jobs in factories or in warehouses. Or cleaning hotel rooms. And, or being a delivery driver. And when we first moved back here to Arizona, I was a d- delivery driver for a couple of years. And I was pushing 40. Our music career was done. I was a delivery driver making just a little bit above minimum wage. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought... I got to do something and I somehow wormed my way into being a geographer. I'm a geographer now. I, um, but it's, it's still a job. It's not music, but you may, you do, you, you deal with what you deal with and you, you put your time in and, and you, you go, go home. home. But yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it is what it is. I mean, the, the artistic dream uh, that you have a certain level of success and that it goes for, it doesn't go forever. I know people that have been in major labels and when they got off tour, they go to work at jobs, PetSmart. I can think of one band in particular mm-hmm. and you know, it's, it's fleeting and um, it doesn't last forever. And I'm sick and tired of hearing people saying, well, Aerosmith and you too still do it and they're old. I'm like, yeah, but they don't have any monetary issues. Mm, yeah. No. No, and they make they make all their money on the road. Yep. 
And that's the juxtaposition all musicians find themselves in because we're not, you could sell a million records and you're not going to make a dime. Nope. Where it comes from is your touring and to a lesser degree, your merchandising. Mm -hmm. So you guys would literally have to miss your child's childhood, miss your animals and just never be home and just go and go. And, yeah, you're right. And see the dif difference is my childhood was pretty normal up to a certain stage and then upheaval came in. And bouncing around from school to school to school to school, and it, it destroyed me. Mm -hmm. And the last thing in the world I want to do is to do that to my son. So right now, priority number one is giving him stability. Mm -hmm. And so working a day job gives my son that stability. Yeah. I don't want him to be me. Right. I don't I I, I want him to do music, and he's already He's 10 years. I mean, he's going to be 10 years old here shortly. He's already put and, and piano, mm -hmm. but, and he, so I have no doubt that he'll explore music, but I don't want him to see music as a release for angst. angst. Maybe but, he'll be writing those happy songs that we were laughing about earlier. Maybe. <laughs> we used to always joke around that when he grows up, he's going to be king of the soft rock revival. Yeah. yeah. He'll be playing <laughs> yacht rock. <laughs> Yeah, like, like Toto or something. Like air supply and bread. He'll be yeah. like bringing that back. But if he's happy, good for hey, him. Hey, man, I, whatever it is, I'll be on board. And, and I don't know about you, Tara. I'll but be I, merch girl. I'm sick and tired of people saying, you're so lucky. You're so <laughs> lucky you have this. I'm like, do you understand what <laughs> the, the amount of work? The fuel of behind some of those songs. Yeah, it's, it's not like it's not like uh, like I don't consider myself lucky to be the person that wrote Star Wars or anything. <laughs> but I'm sort of embarrassed at times. You know, it's like wow, I really drifted pretty low there. <laughs> well, think about it. Could you imagine somebody saying to Philip K. Dick, like, "You're so lucky you wrote these these works. They're so brilliant." That man went insane writing. Yeah, so yeah Dick literally drove himself insane. I mean, he right, was schizophrenic right, right. as well, but it definitely didn't help. Right. Yeah. 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 So, so yeah, it's kind of funny. It's like because you know, every once in a while, people will make comments like, "Oh, Dirk will," you know, hopefully, Dirk like Dirk is going to be the next goth band. It's like I hope not. I no, don't no. want him to be like sad and miserable and like have to write songs about how depressed he is. I want him to be a happy, well-adjusted human being that doesn't, you know. That creates di a different kind of art, maybe if that's what he wants. But I don't want him like feeling like we've felt that that created these songs. I don't. I hope to God he avoids those dark, you know, emotions. I can't tell you how many songs I've written about. The the the, the theme is be waking up in the middle of the night and like, okay, this is the only peace I have. <laughs> it's three o'clock in the morning and I'm laying in bed. I don't have to deal with anything. Right yeah. Now. This yeah. is wonderful. Oh, wait a minute. I got to get up here shortly. Yeah, go punch the clock again. But I mean, more than just the jobs. I mean, I know. it's just. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when, yeah. I I don't want him to follow our path. And so far, so good. <laughs> yeah. We're, we got him on a good path here. Yeah. Dirt, the future of. He can be like a pop punk band or well, something. Well, <laughs> we always joke around him about that, but he, I mean, he he does like he, he has a great gauge of what's good and what's not. He does. It's weird. We're like, do you like this? He's like, no, I don't like it. Okay. 
good. I took him to viola lessons the other day, and you know, it's a music store, so there's instruments laying around. And he's over there playing the synth, and he was playing that song from The Shining. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sitting here, you know, na, 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 na. He's playing it on the synth, and I'm like looking around going, is anybody catching that this nine-year-old is playing that on the synth right now? It just cracked me up. But, I mean, you know, he's our kid, so. You may have a, a future John Cale on your hands and not realize I it. Ex I would be like, that would be, would make my, make make yeah. my, my life i just want him to be happy yeah whatever he's doing mm -hmm. so, that leads me to a, a very personal question you you may not want to answer this but potty training how did you get it done how did you get done? yeah so okay i have a trick for i have a tip not a trick it's a tip so if you have a boy they instinctively are harder to potty train than girls. Don't know why, that's just the case. Mm -hmm. So I actually bought this little urinal because boys pee easier in a urinal than on a potty or whatever. And they make these cute little urinals that you could stick to the side of the bathtub and he picked it up like immediately. Um, you know, the other part was not as easy, I should say. <laughs> no, it was not as easy. But yeah, I don't know. But That's my tip is to get this the your little urinal thing. But it happens. I mean, we were we were frustrated for a long time thinking, oh my God, is this kid gonna be shitting his pants until he's in high school? <laughs> and then it just happens. It just happens. Yeah, the doctor's like, I promise you he's not gonna be in elementary school wearing diapers. Like just let it happen when it happens, it's all good. And the yeah, so it, it will happen. Um I mean, Why are you going through that now? Well, my my son's two, so I know it's a it's a little it's a little premature. But yeah. my my daughter just used to follow me into the bathroom, and we had a potty next to the toilet, and yeah. she she mimicked everything. Yeah, yeah. My son, not so much. He doesn't care. Yeah. Um, and my my mother's advice was uh, just when you have him playing outside, bring a milk jug that's empty with you because that's how I potty trained you. <laughs> well, yeah, that, may, that makes a lot of sense, but. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's funny. Yeah. Things that you never thought you'd do when you were, you know, well, I'm an old, I'm an old mom, but when I was in my 20s, I never thought I would be interested in how to potty train yeah, a child. It all plays, it plays itself out. It just does. I mm -hmm. mean, there was a time where I just thought, oh, my God, this kid's never going to be not shitting his diapers. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, he's in the other room mortified right now, I'm sure. Oh, Dirk, I am so sorry, my friend. I just <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't watch this stuff. He don't, yeah, he don't he's care. in there playing Fortnite right now or yeah. something. Oh, God. With his buddies, which we have to definitely limit at times because he gets a little weird. It's <laughs> intense with the Fortnite. Oh my god, I I don't even know how I'll handle that because I don't think I've played a video game since Atari Twenty Six Hundred. No, it, I've never done it. It will come because I mm -hmm. I hadn't either, and it just happens. And before you know it, you'll be like me building pyramids in Minecraft. <laughs> I wouldn't even know what Minecraft was if you showed it to me right now. I'm that terrible. <laughs> you will. You will. You will understand it completely, mm -hmm. <laughs> and you'll sort of enjoy it too because it's a a building game and it's not violent, and you just build stuff. And... I, I think I'll enjoy whatever bonds me to my child. But I, I, I'd, I'd mentioned I'd mentioned to Tara that he really loved Australia 
when he was small. I'd play it for him, and he would just oh. knock right out. You know what? I feel like Excellent. somebody else told us that they used to use that album to put their kid to sleep. Good. It's, <laughs> I mean, it's very hypnotic. Yeah, that's that's cool. Yeah. It's not boring. It's it's soothing, though. He found it soothing. But I then again, that. he finds a lot of strange things soothing. I, I have I have another me on my hands. No matter what, he's not going to grow up in the same home I did. Thank God, but it, he's he's me. Yeah. <laughs> and my poor <laughs> wife has to deal with two of us. <laughs> That's cool. No, it's awesome. I love it. I do too. It's awesome. Yeah, it's funny because I'll post pictures of Dirk making faces and stuff, and I'm just like, this is so my child. Like, he's a dork just like we are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But yeah, it's cool. So is the elusive third solo album uh, in the cards for us, Tara? You know what? I I kept saying no for the last decade, probably. Yeah, <laughs> I know you have. But I, I did some vocals recently for someone, and then I was like, you know, it'd be kind of fun to, to play around with this again. So I don't know. Probably not, but... I mean, who knows at this point? I, we're get, starting to get our our recording situation set up a little more conducive to me using it. Um, so maybe. Yeah, we stripped our studio back quite a, <clears throat> well, you know, 15 years ago. And everything that you've, that we've done in the second wave has been done on a computer in our bedroom in a real stripped down way. Um, but the computers right now are really having issues. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to clear out one of my, one of my laptops. Um, it's similar to what I did with a old tower computer I did, which um, I just disconnected from the internet, got rid of everything, just had music software on there. Yeah. And it started running really powerful and good. And that's what, Hopefully that's what we recorded um, quiet moments. Well, fifth sun quiet moments and a line that connects into flickers on. Um, but that that computer was a, a computer from 2002 and it eventually started <laughs> to die. I could hear the hard disk starting to go. So we did Casa Luna on uh, a laptop. Wow. And um, that laptop is now because the internet is just always pushing updates, giving me issues. So I've actually spent the last couple of weeks just clearing everything out of that. I'm going to um, eventually just dump everything out of it. But the recording software, our same old recording software that we've used for years, and then just cut the cut the line to the internet, and then we'll um, have a good running studio again. So at that point, um, the, the project that John Fair and I are going to work on with maybe potentially working out some old songs, we're going to work on that, that potential, that possibly could start this fall and any other new things that just happen to percolate at any given times, mm -hmm. whether it's the Terra solo stuff or any kind of our collaborations that we do, or maybe another um, new music Lycia would happen on that. But right now, nothing, nothing really is going, but yeah, but let me just say, after every single release that we've done in the second wave, when we finished it, I've always told Tara, this is it. I'm done. We've done everything we could do. There's nothing else to say. 
And then about six months to a year later. Then it I'll, hasn't even been six months this time. No, it hasn't. It's been two months. New ideas start percolating <laughs> and then uh, something else starts. Well, you guys were always really good at pulling disappearing acts on us. I have to say, and it would, it would, there was never anything announced, but it would just go quiet. Where'd they go? Yeah. I see it ended probably officially amongst me and Tara. <laughs> when we, I've ended Lycia after Stark Corner, after Cold, <laughs> after uh, tripping back into the broken days, and then probably at least 15 times in the 2000s where <laughs> Lycia's done. No, Lycia's not done. I was completely whacked during that decade well there was a lot of drama though too yeah. like contracts that couldn't be got well, there was, was just a, all kinds there of there was drama garbage. in every front there but um after um i think really after a line that connects i remember we did a road trip a crazy road trip from arizona to ohio and michigan with dirk and the dogs and <laughs> and i remember telling tara at that time that you know a line that connects was the last checkbox for me. Um, you know, Quiet Moments was me going back and revisiting the Stark Corner Ionia period to a degree. But I always wondered what a follow-up to Cold would have sounded like because Dave left the band after Cold. Mm -hmm. And I always thought, wow, we were really on a, on a real strong path at that point. And it just, when he, when he left, it's sort of like really broke that it broke that momentum and i always wondered what a follow-up would have sounded like so um a line that connects was sort of that follow-up because dave was back and we collaborated the same way we did back then and i turned the mixing realm back over to him just like with cold and um and after it was done i was like okay i think i checked all the check boxes off i'm, I'm good but then shortly after some new ideas came and it was almost like a like and you said it earlier it was like a new start mm -hmm. and flickers really was like a new start it felt like okay we ran our course now let's just do music and i went into it with no rules um i was like whatever's going to happen it started out initially going to be a like a solo mike van portfleet acoustic guitar and ambient ep and <laughs> it just evolved yeah, it's, uh, it's certainly not that. <laughs> it's not. Because once, um, once I got that going, then I started bringing the electric guitar in. I was like, okay, this is going someplace else. And I just went with it. It just, to me, and I'm reiterating what I'd said earlier, it, it not only did it feel like a new start, but it, it, not, not a new band, because obviously you're playing, you could blindfold me and play me something new by Lycia, and I'd know from the guitar tone it was you, but did have that something else that 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 freedom it felt free on Un, unfettered completely i love hearing that description because that to me was the freedom that's when i finally said i'm i'm letting go i'm just going to go with where it takes me and i don't care if it succeeds or fails i don't care i just want to go where this path is leading and and um like i said there was times where i remember when dave was like I'm not really following where this album is going. Because <laughs> it's sort of and all I, over the place. And I kept on saying, just trust me on this. I have a vision. I, I hear something. I hear something here. And I just went with it. And um, it's my favorite album. It's the most, I'm, I'm most satisfied with that album. It tied, tied up so many loose ends and working with John again and 
working with Dave again, everything was positive. Everything went so mm -hmm. smoothly. There was no arguments. There was no creative struggles with the exception of maybe occasionally someone saying, this is, this is going in a different direction. I was just, I just stood firm and said, just trust me on this, which I never did in the past. I was, I'm a, I'm a pretty insecure person. And you it know, would cause you to question. I would start yourself. questioning. And yeah. a lot of times I would be like, Oh, that's crazy. I can't do that. I can't do it. It's also a more feminine album than almost anything I think you've ever done. And, and I, maybe I'm just reading into that from something in, within myself, but I just, I, there's a, a feminine quality to it that, hadn't it hadn't quite shown itself prior to that i mean there, there was a, there were always feminine qualities to lycia but this musically speaking there was just that's interesting yeah i never heard that before and i find it very fascinating actually yeah. because i i love the expanding of of the moods and the approaches like i i never saw it from that angle but i can see i can that's, see what yeah. i can see what you're saying i can Me definitely too. see what you're saying because you hear something like like Godflesh, who I love, Godflesh is it's dark and plodding, which to me is ultimately masculine. Mm -hmm. Then he turns around and does Jesu, which is, has more lilt and more melody, which to me yeah. uh, I equate with the feminine because it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. So I guess what I'm really trying to say is there was a lot more beauty imbued to that record and Casa Luna. That's interesting. I guess that's good. I, I, I like to yeah. hear that. I wanted to bring that in. There's a lot of influences on both albums that I think people that listen to Lycia would be like sort of surprised at. Dirk and I went um, a couple weeks ago. There's a museum here in um, Arizona called the Musical Instrument Museum. It's really quite fascinating. And I found myself completely transfixed in the Brazilian section because there was Brazilian pop, sort of that jazz influence. Yeah. And when I was working on the song She on in Flickers, I was telling Tara that this song is Girl from Ipanema meets Sonic Youth. That, <laughs> that was the working title that I had for it because the first part I envisioned a couple of old guys sitting on the beach playing their acoustic guitars, playing this jazzy, summery stuff. The end of the song would be all this noise guitar. I sort of reined both of them in more to the Lycia sound, but the initial vision, it was going to be much more drastic. And going into Casa Luna, I wanted to continue that. So I brought in flamenco elements and I brought in like salt and blood. To me, that is our take on um, some velvet morning from Nancy Sinatra and Lee Hazelwood, mm -hmm. you know, visiting sort of the 60s jazz and like influence, and reverb, wicker man wicker, that, man, that wicker yeah. man vibe and that was my inspiration yeah so we just you know i i like that you know we want to have that we want to bring in these different elements it's exciting as a musician it's exciting bringing these different elements and not just sticking to the same thing you as well as us know you hear these bands they come out They've been around for a long time and their new album sounds just like everything else they've ever done. Uh -huh. And we don't want that. We, you know, we want to bring in like different elements, make it feel different. You know, be, you know, we have, I, I like I said earlier, I have a very short intention span. <laughs> I, I can't imagine just recycling the same style over and over. Um, That's just boring. Like you would stop if that was the case because 
if you've already made cold, why do you need to make cold again? Right? Yeah, it goes yeah. back to my Ambient album. I did my Ambient album and I was very pleased with it. I thought at that time I was so, it was 2004, I was so insecure and I felt I had such nothing but negative feelings about my musical past in Lycia. And I was desperately looking for a, a restart, a, a, a new beginning. And I did Beyond the Horizon line and I, I was really strugg struggling musically at the time. And so I sort of just pulled this rabbit out of the hat and I thought, okay, this is my, my chance to do, a, have a new start and to reinvent myself. I did that album. I started working on a second ad ambient album. And I'm like, been there, done that. <laughs> what, like, what more can I do? It's right. ambient music. Right. What, right. what else can I do with this? <laughs> I love that album. Though. And so oh, it's I, fantastic. And I just, I just lost, Interested in interested in doing ambient music at the time. Yeah. I thought, okay, I just finished something that I, was the first album I ever finished that when I was done, I thought, wow, I succeeded in what I set out to do because every album prior to that, I felt like I had failed. In fact, after we finished recording Estrella, I was struggling so badly with it that I finally one day found peace. And you probably remember this. I went to Tara and I said, I finally found the thing that gives me peace with music is that I fail on every album I do. So that's the con that's it's consistent. That's the consistency that I'm looking for. That I fail on everything that I do. <laughs> oh my God. That's the only way I could find comfort. <laughs> and it's pathetic, but that's where I that's where I was in the nineties. So that that's basically your your uh, ultimate failure upon failure upon failure. That was your raison d'être for continuing. Yeah. It's like, hey, I'm consistent. Yes, you are. I'm consistent here. When the bar is set, you know. So when I was working on Beyond the Horizon Line, I was <coughs> at my absolute low point in every regard. I thought that I I, I, I I had lost my ability to play the guitar, I felt, to my studio. You didn't touch a guitar for a My long studio time. had fallen apart. I didn't think I was a good writer. I bought some software to try to restore some old music, and I accidentally slowed the speed down on one of the songs, and I was like, wow, that sounds pretty cool. And then I turned the reverb on it, and I was like, wow, that sounds good. So that became the catalyst for working on an ambient album. Well, what happened was about a year before I was approached to score a movie, the thing that I had always dreamed to do, but it, it came at the back, back to the out of sync thing. It came at the worst, lowest musical point in my life. So this guy's like, I need you to, you know, if you're interested, score this movie. And I was just like completely noncommittal. And I was like, I don't know if I can do this, uh, you know, so I started working on some some stuff. I came up with maybe about 20 minutes of you know short piano little pieces. And um, of course the train had moved out of the station. The guy went and actually hired a professional composer and did, went on to do the movie. And so he did use some Lycia songs. He though. used a Lycia song in there, but my chance at scoring movies started and ended in that like two month period. But anyways, when I, I, I was experimenting, actually I was trying to restore wake of all things. And so I was like, wait a minute, this sounds cool, but I'm not going to go and take something that I did already like that, that already has an identity and mess with it. So I thought I was just 
looking through files and I came across those piano sounds as well as a, a Lycia song that we had recorded that I just was unsatisfied with. I just didn't think it was good enough. And it was a song called Deep in the Morning Sun, which is also a name of one of my solo songs on that album. So I took those songs and I, I took some advice from Steve Roach, who we had been in his studio working on tripping back into the broken days, yeah. where he said that he often would take stuff that he had recorded before and he would completely manipulate it in the studio and create new sound textures. So I took his advice and I took these old unreleased things that we did and created an ambient album out of that sounded a hundred percent different than what everything originally sounded like. And um, I was so enthused. I thought this is, this is my place. I can reinvent myself, but you know, I'm a songwriter and I started in punk rock. And so, when it came back to it, it's like, I just can't keep on doing these abstract soundscapes because it's just not what I am. I'm, I still want to write a verse, chorus, verse, chorus, break. And I still want to have the guitar be the main instrument. And so um, that was the end of the ambient career. <laughs> <laughs> but that was a very Dadaist uh, approach to it. I mean, just taking something that pre-existed, be it yours or not, and using it to become something else. I mean, that's, there was an entire movement based on that with the whole cut and paste thing with uh, Burroughs and, and that whole group. Yeah, you're right. So you, you, you were just carrying on a, a great <laughs> tradition unbeknownst to yourself. <laughs> and also um, several years in advance sort of set the template to albums like Quiet Moments and um, uh, some of the maybe a few songs on um, a line that connects a song like Illuminate, um, just that we just take a, 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 a just a, a a passage and just drum it in and just keep it going and keep it going and just bring elements and bring waves up and bring it down. And it also, even though I think um, in Flickers and Casa Luna are very song oriented maybe more song oriented than anything we've done previously that that approach that i had on the ambient album creeps into those albums too for a lot of the background ambience mm -hmm. um, and the textures for certain yeah, it really did i mean um there's uh on salt and blood there's a passage which i um, was nostalgic for sort of that early 80s sequenced synth stuff that you'd hear in movies and so i added that and i was just like it's too clean and so i added some dissonant noise ambience in the background that i really created similar to how i would have created for my ambient stuff and it just sort of adds that tension in the background that i think is always needed in Lycia. you can't have it be it can't be too pretty it can't be too pleasant <laughs> no, it'd be a I'm... pretty song with a underlying unstable sadness in the background <laughs> You have to think, what would John Carpenter do almost? Like, <laughs> yeah, you're right, John Carpenter. <laughs> he, he's another one who would invent, uh, unintentionally invented an entire uh, genre of music, the synth and wave. I know, and you think about it, none of them have really quite emulated what he did with that um, his song for Halloween, you know? I mean, that, that is sort of the uh, epitome of it all, and you listen to it and you think, 
there's a movie director that just decided he was going to score for himself and he created a song that's absolutely perfect it's perfect yeah oh it, it actually to me it, it it eclipses tubular bells use in the exorcist i mean there, there's just something yeah. so so unnatural and and unstoppable about about that piano line and there, there's nothing intricate about it it's just it's an attack and yeah. you know be it just light lightly attacking and and it just builds this tension and there's there's an entire wave of people trying to emulate it and, and the, some of them are great some of them not so great i mean yeah. but they're not getting it <laughs> i've heard some of the some of the stuff that's is pretty good i was surprised because you know you go to band camp and you know i'm an old guy i've been mm -hmm. around a long time so you go to band camp and you like look at those covers like oh my gosh that looks so cheap this has got to be cheesy mm -hmm. got to be real cheesy and um one of the bands that's very popular um, had actually mentioned Lycia, so I went and checked them out, and I was like, "Wow, this is pretty. This is pretty good stuff." I was very impressed with it. Was it Survive by any chance? I like Survive. It wasn't yeah. Survive. I do yeah, like they're, Survive. They're fantastic. Yeah, they're, they are fantastic. I've seen some stuff of them jamming in their garage, and it's just magical. It's like I can really relate to that, you know. And they scored big with doing the Stranger Things soundtrack as well. Those guys really hit gold there. <laughs> that that is probably the is is right up there with the Halloween song. It really is. I mean, you hear yeah, that song yeah, 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 and yeah. you feel that emotion, and you're just like, okay, I'm ready to watch this show, but I'm also ready to listen to this song. Yeah. yeah. The opening salvo of Ionia is like that for me. I that's it's that cinematic. I could feel. Uh, like there's there's a vampire maybe over here getting ready to just oh. yeah. thanks i mean that's that's this flattering um, i mean it changed my life there was a lot of i mean i was i was dominated by so much insecurities when that album came out um you know i was to be honest with you i was embarrassed by that album when it came out because um, i was around so many people that were so negative about it um i I, I really, so I, I, I didn't get any compliments outside of Sam and, and his girlfriend at the time, Susan at Project, outside of them and a few like the mysterious reviewers that, you know, <laughs> they're, they're not like real people because it's, it's pre-internet. And so it's just, you see something in a magazine and they like it, but it's not tangible. It's not like a person. Um, the people that were around me, including some musician friends that were supposed to be allies of mine, were quite negative towards that album when it came out. And so when Ionia came out, I was surrounded with negativity about that album, and I was embarrassed about it. That's so weird. And because I felt that I was, a, I failed. You're married because of that album, though, more than likely. Am I he's, right there? He's a new human being because of that album. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, I, I, I can't even really explain the the isolation of the period of time from maybe late 89 up until like maybe early 93. I mean, in, in this period of time, Ionia was was recorded and some of the songs were written. Some of the songs were older songs that I brought back. All of Stark Corner was written. 
and maybe some of the stuff that ended up on um, Vane and some of the stuff that ended up on disc two of Burning Circle maybe was initially written. But I mean, I lived in a studio apartment by myself. I had no, I had no friends that I socialized with. I, I went to this, I, I live in Arizona. I worked outside in the summer, 11 hour days. And I would just go to work and I would come home and I'd work on music. And I literally felt as though I was making music for myself and myself only. And um, I never visualized that it would resonate with anyone outside me because it was different. It was so different than what was going on at the time. You know, it didn't, it didn't fit with anything. Um, it was just this strange stuff that I did that I was into. And I, and I, I was surprised when project wanted to release it. Um, and I was even more surprised when people started writing me to my PO box. I did. It was just, it was, did you? yeah, I did. I That's did a funny. very, very long time ago. Fanboying out, uh, similarly to, uh, what I did on, uh, your Instagram at, 40 some years old. <laughs> so when you sent, when you sent letters, Relatable. was it to the, an Arizona address? I or was it, it Ohio address. I believe it was Ohio. And because we also lived and died by our PO box in Ohio too. Yeah. It was the lifeline, the pre-internet lifeline checking the PO box every day. Yeah. Because I, I, I recall it was Ohio because there were other, bands in ohio that i had pen palled with most of them were wax tracks oriented so dink you know. was dink one of them was that they were on wax tracks do you remember yeah. dink yes no way yeah, yeah there was dink yeah. there was a uh, pig face uh an early nine inch nails so that we're talking about 1989 90 with nine inch nails they were still yeah. in ohio yeah but you know I, associated with that i was i was a rivet head at that point in my life i was very much into the industrial thing mm -hmm. uh, but yeah i used to i used to write i used to write to you guys uh very, we, um, we very loved, long time ago i hope we I, I i'm pretty sure we probably responded oh yeah certainly i and it was everybody usually. it was important one it of was, us did it was important to us back then it still is um, I was no. going to interview you for a fanzine uh, not too long after that, but we'd done maybe three issues, and then the gentleman I'd done it with, we had a disagreement over content and never did it again. But That's funny. He didn't, he didn't want anything that wasn't a hardcore band in, in no. the fanzine. Yeah. Ohio was a really good time for Lycia because um, – like I was saying, it was there was a lot of um, a lot of negativity around here in Arizona, and um, you know, Dave and I were working on stuff, and it just felt really like we were like fighting a losing battle. And then Tara came out and worked with us, and we went to Ohio, and it was just so refreshing. It felt much more in tune to what we were doing. Well, and this is funny. I just told some friends this story the other day. When he came to Ohio, the very first day I drove him into Kent because that's what you do when you live out in the middle of nowhere. You go to Kent. 
And we drove into Kent and the first car we saw had a Lycia bumper sticker on it. Like, how did that even happen? Like, <laughs> I had never seen anything, didn't know anybody that knew who Lycia was, etc. And the first car we see as we're driving into downtown has a Lycia sticker on. Just the weird randomness of that. So bizarre. So, yeah, we felt much, I felt much more balanced in Ohio. And, um, the dog is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you can hear me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah, quite familiar with the sound. <laughs> yeah. She's, uh, <laughs> if, back to the consistency thing. When we do these, there's always a dog hacking in the background. Yeah. Sure. Barking, wanting to go outside. Throwing up. Something. You know, sometimes if you see me looking away with a, sort of a semi irritated look on my face, <laughs> the dog is like, barfing by my feet or something i'm like really cats are good for that too yes they yeah. are yeah always but there's a always seems to be like that unifying theme of 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 isolation and discomfort isolation and discomfort and now it doesn't that's just not there anymore the, no I mean, I this is the most that. confident i think you've probably ever been it's just sound a bit. I mean, you just evolve in life. Sure. Um, I don't know why why that is. I mean, I just see that. I'm still I'm isolated just, and discomforted, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> we've always done. I think maybe. Um, I don't. I, I don't really know what it is. I think. I think in the past, a lot of times I would be focused in on. I want an album to have a. A unified, theme, and so I would maybe resist varying an album up and just stay on the same course so that so you'd have a, a 60 minute listen that would have the same mood. I don't know what it is. Um, over the, the, I think maybe since a line that connects where I just felt like I wanted to vary things more. Mm -hmm. I went into Flickers wanting to have a wide variety of songs and and I was pretty excited with Casa Luna just going all over the place. You know, I love the fact that we go from the first song, which I think has a jazzy feel, mm -hmm. maybe influenced by Black Star, David Boy's Black Star to a certain degree. And then we go right into this heavy, dark song that Dave and Tara primarily worked on that is completely different. And then we go into a synth pop song. Yeah. yeah. And then we go to a flamenco song. Then we go to a straightforward associates influence pop song. And then we finish with our take on some velvet morning. I mean, it's all over the place, but I, I was worried, you know, when we were putting this out, I thought people are going to be like sort of put off by the wide varieties, but I haven't heard one single person say that. And that's great. No, and and the uh, the cover art is creepy as hell. <laughs> well, it's funny because the cover art got a lot of kickback. Really? Um, not not in the not where, from all not, not where we eventually ended up, but in the path to finally getting it released, there was some there was some disagreements about that. Where I was told that it was not a sellable cover, and I was just like, I don't. My philosophy at this stage in my life is I, I, I function by that dude right behind your shoulder there. What would Jim Morrison do? Jim Morrison doesn't wouldn't give a rat's ass if an album was sellable. Likewise, no. I don't care. 
I have a job. I pay my bills. I do music because I love music and whether it sells or not, doesn't make a difference to me. And I, and furthermore, that cover was amazing. So I don't, Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I might be partial cause I took the picture and it's my child, but <laughs> criticism of it was so bizarre. And and we, and we're somebody. not going to go there cause we're not going to point. That's Dirk. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's the only picture. Yeah, he was in his Halloween costume. All our, all, yeah. Everything we do is about our life here at our house. Mm -hmm. um, if, if you were here right now, I could take it into a room <laughs> and you could see the the, the, the bison head on, in, in, on yeah. Inflickers. It's in our house. These are stuff in our house. All the stuff from Inflickers, with exception of one picture from Drome, Arizona, mm -hmm. is pictures taken inside our house. Um, it's important to us. Yeah, so. it's it's soundtrack to our life. And so uh, with Casa Luna, we took a picture of Dirk a year ago. Or, uh, well, the first Halloween of COVID. Mm -hmm. Dirk didn't get to go trick-or-treating that year because of COVID. And we felt so bad. So we went and sat in front of our house. Dirk dressed up. And we sat out there and he ate candy. And Tara took a picture of him. Yeah. And we said, this has got to be the cover. Because it was such race. a cool picture. Now, the original picture was farther back. And I we altered it because we were a little nervous of some copyright infringement issues because of the costume. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And But that wasn't the issue with the um, previous one of the previous labels that we were discussing with. They didn't like it because they didn't think it was sellable. And... When anyone comes to me and mentions the word sellable and music, I'm like, stop, stop. I'm not a businessman. I don't care about like business. we're not Taylor Swift. What the fuck I don't, difference does I don't care. I don't care if it's sellable or not. The question that I have for you, and this is the question that I gave to this label, is do you want to release this? Yes or no? Because if you don't release it, I can find another label to release it or I can release it myself because we all we care about is just putting our music out there and connecting with people like you people that appreciate it you know this isn't this this is this is a journey that we've taken to just be creative and to find kindred spirits and as soon as the business stuff is brought up i'm just like i i check out i'm like i'm I, it, the, the other deal we were discussing became so businesslike that I presented an option that was so difficult that they had to say no. <laughs> because at that point, I was like, if this is what you want to talk about, then fine, I'll go there. But you'll never want to touch me again. <laughs> <laughs> because this isn't the same person that I was 20 years mm -hmm. ago. When you could get manipulated, I'm, into I'm focused into my vision, and I'm going to do what I want to do. And fortunately, as soon as I mean, literally, almost the same day as everything was falling apart, a third party hooked us up with Avantgarde, who we had already done Ionia, Ionia with, and they were like, "Sign us up, man!" And I was just so thankful because. You know, it, it couldn't have worked out better for us. Um, They're just cool. on every front because we never realized the extent of 
our support in Europe because we live in Arizona, we're isolated people. Uh, Casa Luna came out and the attention that we got from hardcore metal magazines in Europe was off the hook. I'm still sort of reeling from it because I'm, I'm like, wow, why, why didn't we move over to Europe in the 90s? And we could probably have been touring every year nonstop. I think, I think most musicians can probably say that to some degree or another because Europe, they just get it. No matter what it is, they seem to get it in a way that the United States doesn't. Yeah. We just don't. I mean, we don't even, music isn't even a commodity anymore in this country. I mean, you, you think of MTV, for example. I remember the week MTV started when it was I do too. <laughs> this loose nonsense. And 10 years later, there was no more music on MTV. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the radio. Uh, and Butthead used to like break artists. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember I, I talked to Keith Caputo from Life of Agony about three weeks after they were on uh, Beavis and Butthead. And he said, dude, we're going to be huge now. <laughs> yeah. That's the first. I think that's the first time I saw Typo, too. And Daisy Chainsaw was on um, Beavis and Butthead. And I, de I dead named Mina Caputo, and I didn't mean to. Um, she wasn't Mina Caputo at that time, and I didn't mean to do that. So, Mina, I'm sorry. Well, we're, yeah, and we're well aware of the situation of our support, yeah. very supportive of the whole thing. Yeah. yeah, 100%. 100% supportive of it. But I remember MTV. I actually watched MTV when it first came on. Um, I watched, watched it that first whole day, and MTV was actually pretty interesting back then because – for every 38 special and Pat Benatar, you'd get a Bauhaus and Killing Joke. Yeah. Because they were limited on the videos they had. And you got some pretty good good videos back there, you know? Um, you know, a lot of good English post-punk was played back then. And, um, but yeah, it a few years later, it was, you know, the corporations took over and it became all about, you know, the big bands. and. And even when even when those those big hair metal bands uh, were slain by Nirvana, Nirvana ripped off Killing Joke. <laughs> yeah, in a, in a big, big, big way. <laughs> yeah. But you know what's funny about that is go and look for songs that sound like '80s, and The Damned actually released a song a couple. It might have been before '80s, like a year before the '80s. And it starts out when you hear the first part of the song, you'll be like, okay, wait a minute. Who ripped off who here now? Because <laughs> it starts out with that same riff. No kidding. Was it on the black album? I don't know which one it was. Um, I don't I don't I don't know which one it was on. The, the chronology um, is escaping me, and I'm normally very good with that. Yeah, I only you know, the dam wasn't a regular band that I listened to, I liked I liked what I heard, but I never bought any albums, so I, I wasn't as familiar with them like I was with Killing Joke, which was, I was absolutely fanatical about them in the early, early 80s. Did you catch the documentary that just came out recently? Yeah, yep, actually it's funny because I had actually bought it and there was all these um, issues with it and I never got my, my copy. And um, I ended up writing and I actually ended up talking with the director and he, oh. he's the one that made sure I got my copy because there was a weird mixed up. It was on pre-order 
and somehow there was issues and everything got messed up and everyone that had made their initial pre-orders weren't getting theirs. And so I finally got it and I was so pissed off <laughs> that I watched it. I'm like, ah, I'm tired of this crap. So I, I only watched half of it and I didn't finish watching it. Uh -huh. Well, I went and watched it about, what, about six months ago. Uh -huh. I was like, wow, there's a reason why I love this band so much because on every front, one, musically, I love Killing Joke. Secondly, all the stuff that jazz is, is into, it's the same stuff I've been into for like four years. You know, I, I, we always talk about when we went to Mexico City and to play a Lycia show, and everyone always said, talk, ask what the highlight for us was. And we always say the same thing Teotihuacan, mm. seeing the pyramids, and yeah. having a personal tour guide of Teotihuacan. Unbelievable. We spent a day there. To me, when I think about Mexico City, I was like, oh, yeah, we played the show. Oh my God, we went to Teotihuacan. And the people. It was the Teotihuacan yeah. and how amazing all yeah. the people were. Yeah. yeah. Fell in love with them. Like to the point where, like, you know, we could probably move here. Yeah. But um, we've always, I've always been. Which ironically is where Jazz lives. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so um, I've, I've been into a lot of that stuff for a long time too. So he's obviously sort of the polar opposite of me. He's like a personality over the top. I'm sort of the hide in my room, but we have a lot of the same interest. And so it's always really cool. And, and Tara's not as familiar with killing joke as I am. So I'm ironically over the last like few days, I've been leading her through it. I'm like, okay, you have this really great early period. And then you have this commercial period. It's still all right, except for one album. And that's still okay too, but it's really slick. And then, man, they learn their lesson and they just come back. Well, it was funny <laughs> because we actually watched the documentary again a couple of days ago. And so, like, I mean, I know who Killing Joke are. He listens to them all the time. It's I never didn't know who they were, but I just never really paid attention to it. And then watching that documentary, I'm like, got obsessive about it. And like, that's legit all I've kind of listened to since then. And I'm over here, like today I was listening to um, the second one. What's this for? What's this, What's for? this for, yeah. And I was like, God, I'm so mad at myself that I didn't know about this album back in the day. And then I'm like, wait a minute, I was only nine years old. Like, I wouldn't have, but but you know what I mean? I'm like, I want to... I want to go back and experience that as a teenager because when you know when you're young and you're finding music and you're obsessive about it and you yep. sit there and you read all the lyrics and like you hunt everything down that you can about the band and you're obsessing 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 like I want to be that person again. Yeah. But it's not I'm just not like that now as as an old lady or whatever. No but, one's like that now though. Mm -hmm. Everyone consumes music and uh, far so different. Sad. But, but I've been like, you know, while I work, I have my laptop by my desk and I just go from one video to like on YouTube, just one song to the next, to the next, to the next, and then, you know, go back and wa watch them again. And it's just funny that I'm like, how am I almost 50 years old and just now obsessed with Killing Joke? Like, well, they're still making great oh, albums. Like, I know that last album. That was a regular, yeah. I listened to it every day to and from work until it was displaced by Black Star. Mm -hmm. And then I listened to that every day on the way to work until it was displaced by the demonstration by Drag Majesty. Yo, I have it behind me. Yeah. 
So those three albums in a row pretty much occupied my to and from work. But um, Pylon is a is a great album. It just I I, I really the heaviest it's non metal album of all time. It's the heaviest yeah. non metal album I've ever heard. Yeah, it's just it's amazing. Um, it's, Again, you hear their influences. Who I mean. You hear their music and then you're like, oh my God, that band's that band, that band, they have to be influenced by them. You know? Yeah, they, they, that's what I love so much about um, the English post punk scene of like 1979, 1980, 81, is that you had all these bands that were just doing their own thing. They all sounded very unique. And the, I mean, think about it. I mean, I was listening to The Clash and the Sex Pistols. And then a year later, you're listening to bands that are bringing dub reggae influence in, that are bringing disco drums in, they're bringing in heavy metal guitars, they're bringing in, you know, sort of, you know, ambient synths. It's just, they're bringing all these different influences in, and it just was so exciting. I, 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 and creative. Uh, for me, creative, yeah. as a music fan, that period of time was just magical. And I was telling her earlier today, I used to go to the record store and you had to make that big decision. What album am I going to buy? It's not like most time you go there and you're looking for one particular album. They don't have it in stock. And you're just like, well, I guess I'm not going to buy anything then. Back then you, you had to choose between five or six, seven, eight, 10, 15, 20 albums. Cause and, you only had a certain amount of money. Yeah. And so, and most of the time you pick it and you'd be like, you go home and listen to it and you're like, wow, I wasn't expecting this, but this is great. You know, whether it's like the Virgin Prunes or, you know, Bauhaus or Wire or whatever it is. And they all had their own very unique sound. Oh, and yeah. Pink nobody, Flag especially. Pink Flag, nothing sounds like Pink Flag. Nothing. <laughs> but well, yeah, there, were, there was in that same time period and sh like a little thereafter, you can you can look at an album cover and kind of know if you're going to like it. You could look yeah. at a record label and know whether or not pretty much within reason if you're going to like something. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no experience. There's no tactile experience like that anymore in music shopping. I mean, it's just point yeah. and click and drag. Point and click and yeah. drag. You don't find other other bands that you would like from the thanks lists of the band you already like. Yeah. You know, yeah. that that's how we did it. Or tape that's trading fair. back in the 80s. I remember I read a article. It might have been in Rolling Stone magazine. It's late seventies, and it was talking about um, this new music movement that was going on in England. They called it post punk and gloom doom. That's what they called it, and they were talking about PIL and Joy Division as being sort of the bands that were the, the catalyst for this. And then they had this big list of bands afterwards. And it was a who's who of who I would listen to later. It was Echo and the Bunnymen, um, Killing Joke, Bauhaus, U2, The Cure, just all these bands listed. And I used that list for like a year to go up to the store. And I'd buy albums by these bands. And I'd go home and be like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Everything that I bought was amazing. So sort of the equivalent of that now is people's playlists. Yeah. Yeah. So you, I mean, we do have things like that now. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you get to do a playlist for a, a 
page and like mm -hmm. I've done playlists before. I put playlists in my books for the same reason because you know the, the what influences you and if like yeah. there's a lot of young kids now that don't know any of these bands and they happen to stumble onto your playlist and they're like, oh my God. Well, they don't know. even know us. They stumbled <laughs> right. on us because From somebody else's some bands playlist listed a band yeah. who then listed another band right. and then listed us and then we list true. early 80s bands. Or true. Yeah, true. So it's, it's, I mean, we do have those equivalents now, but. But um, the difference being. You can't that, go to the store and do it. Yeah, like. with a playlist, you actually <laughs> could hear it. I went there yeah, and had no too. idea that's, what it that's was. That's true too. So when I, you're blindly buying. When I come home with an album by whatever particular band, in some cases I never heard them before, yeah. never at never. And then you hear it and you're like, wow. But we also back then, like I was telling her that there was a, a local DJ here that, like on Sunday night at midnight, would have the new music show. And that's where I first heard Killing Joke. It was probably in like 19, early 1981. So it was only shortly after their debut album came out. And, you know, you hear stuff on the radio, like get in the middle of the night, it just blew my mind. And, you know, the next day I'm hightailing it over to the <laughs> record store. And even hey. though it was an indie import, there it was. And now we just got it again. Yeah, actually, we just got it again. Yesterday, yesterday, the day before. Yep. Yeah. Would you pick up one of the one of the reissues that came out on uh, oh, Spine Farm Records, I believe? Yep. Yeah. Yep. But yeah, we're like you. We I think vinyl has brought the joy back to music. Yeah. Because, um, unlike any other format with vinyl, you put on the record and then you just find that it's natural just to sit down and listen and do nothing else. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a ceremony. It's almost like being an addict. There's, there's, yep. there, there's a ceremony to it. I can go like this and you know, you put it on and it's, it's your whole attention yep. you know, yep. and, and the smell of it and yep. you know, the beautiful colors on some of them, some of them not know, but, and it, it's, it's an entire tactile experience. It's not just a, an auditory experience. Yeah. yeah. And you're not going to get that with digital music. I'm sorry, yeah, kids. You don't. You're not. You um, don't. Um, when the whole transition took place between CDs to digital, I was, I was drinking the Kool-Aid, saying, "Okay, music is changing. Everyone's going to listen to on their, their computer and on their phones or on their iPods or whatever." But man, it really killed music. It really did. Music changed. Um, Good music was still coming out, but the listening experience changed. Yeah, it became background music. Um, yeah, when the vinyl when vinyl started coming back, everyone I know that's into vinyl does the same thing. They they listen to they get an album, they put it on, they sit down, they listen to it. They don't talk. They just listen to music. Mm -hmm. like when we're done with this, I'm probably going to put that killing joke on. <laughs> well, I haven't listened to it yet. She hasn't heard it yet. I listened uh, to it when I got yeah. home from work. And it was a blast from the past, man. I, yeah, there, there I was. Pimple, little you. Little pimply face, Mike Manport, for listening to Killing Joke. <laughs> All my friends were telling me that that music was pretentious and goofy, and that they oh wow, need to insert stupid band of the day here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still listening to the same stuff. The same people that called me pretentious back then have like went on a musical 
journey that's horrible and i'm still listening to i always think stuff. about that too because when i was in high school i was like i i didn't know how to do anything because i lived out in the middle of nowhere i'm sure you understand this too yeah. having grown up out in the middle of nowhere so your version of what was cool would not have been cool in places that were actually cool and so i would go to school and people would be like you're such a poser you're such a poser and i'm like Okay, well, decades later, I still do the exact same stuff, listen to the same music, and you guys are doing whatever you're doing now. So, I mean, yeah, I guess I was a poser, whatever. <laughs> There's a difference between being a poser and finding yourself. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I don't like, I don't judge people about that stuff because it's like, I mean, I can remember meeting people from like Cleveland and stuff, and they would be like, do you know this band, this band, this band? And I'm like, no. And they're like, how do you not know that band? And finally, I was just like, I'm sorry, I'm not as cool as you. Like, I don't even know how to say Einstein's a new button. Leave me alone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I live in Manaway, Ohio. How the fuck would I know what that is? Like, <laughs> hey, everyone just likes what they like. Everyone just needs to be respectful and you like. Yeah, what you totally. Like. Who cares? Like who like. It's not a barometer of whether you're worthy or not. Like, yeah, I mean, just listen to music you like. No, well, the barometer usually was if you hipped someone to it, and if they said it sucked, then you're right. like, okay, we're probably right. not going to get along. So, right, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, it's just funny how people are about that stuff. Like, I used to get sort of embarrassed, like if I didn't know about a band that I probably should know about, and I would just like not mention it or whatever. Now I'm just like, yeah, I never heard of them. Like, whatever. Like, it's not my thing. <laughs> it's it's just so funny how that works because I remember in the early eighties being embarrassed, like, man, I didn't get into punk until like <laughs> 70, Please. early 78, man. I'm such a late, I came, Poser. Onto, I came onto this so late. Johnny come lately. You know? Yeah. It's funny. <laughs> and, and it's funny because like I have friends who have like teenage kids who know more about music from that era than I ever will. It, just because that's what they're interested in. And I'm like, yeah, I can't tell you one Nick Cave song. I don't know. Just never was something I listened to. Like, I don't know. Uh, there's just so much stuff out there. You there's so much stuff like. you can't know all. I mean, I can't know all of it. Some people well, have the, amazing. The perfect movies, example but. is this, is that I'm a, I'm, I was a massive post-punk fan back in the early 80s, a fanatical one. And yet somehow, some way, I never heard the sound. Never heard the sound. And then, what about two years ago? Mm -hmm. I listened to the sound and I thought, oh my God, this is the favorite band from the early 80s I never heard. <laughs> and I became obsessed with them. Mm -hmm. As Tara can, can back yeah. me up on this, I literally listened to them nonstop for two months. Yeah. And well, thought, how did I never hear this? Because, well, none we couldn't steal it back then. There was no way. Yeah, there was no internet, there was nothing. None of my friends listened to right. it. Right. So it wasn't friends, played on the radio. Right. How, how are you supposed to hear right. it? It was all word of mouth. All word of mouth. So for me, like, you don't know anything, and you know, you don't just, you can't just know something. Yeah. And so if your friends didn't listen to that stuff, you weren't exposed to it at that time. So yep. you know, like, I, I, I kill myself that I wasn't as obsessed with Killing Joke back then. <laughs> Because I, it just pisses me off. And I tell him, I'm like, but none of my friends listen to that. So 
Hey man, you're listening. like I knew who they were, you but listen we to just listen to so other it's stuff. All good. <laughs> but it pisses me off. Do you know how many people I, I know? Me obsessed with it. I, do you know how many people I know who are got into Killing Joke because of a Metallica covers I've EP? Seen that. A yeah, I've seen that. A lot of comments. A lot of people. Yeah, yeah. That's how I met Will Welsh. He he was a, a metal fan and he heard that their cover. So he yeah. got Killing Joke and then he heard the Killing Joke version. He's like, well, wait a minute here. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. This sounds a, a, a bit different. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, yeah. Same, thing with, same thing with the Misfits. The Misfits gained more traction because of Metallica. Yep. Than, you know, I mean, so the, the, everybody's got a gateway drug and maybe they're embarrassed of it now. Maybe they're not, but yeah. that's how it goes. Yeah, I have no shame over any of it. You no, know, like, I love Def Leppard and I will not apologize for it. <laughs> you and her. I love Me them. Too. Every time they're on the radio, crank it. And I hated them back when I was a kid, though. I hated them. Oh, okay. With those guilty pleasures. Um, I feel no guilt. I grew up in the 70s. I can still sit there and listen to Steely Dan and say, holy crap, that's amazing stuff. Well, AHA's brilliant. Let's face it. AHA's a brilliant record. <laughs> But um, the same thing with Chicago. I think Chicago is brilliant. And they don't have to write the best music, but they're musically prolific and, you know, very good at what they do. They have some songs I like. I play one of them on the guitar every once in a while. It's funny, too, because you talked about hanging out with Peter and stuff. Every time Mike would talk to him on the phone, he always talked about Gordon Lightfoot. Yes. Gordon Lightfoot. Like every time. Yeah. Yeah. Gordon I, Lightfoot. I wish he would have done a cover of... Um, you know, Edmund Fitzgerald. Edmund Fitzgerald. He'd always talk. Whoops, yeah. He'd always talk about the Edmund Fitzgerald. And when um, we sent him tripping back to the broken days, he told me, he "Goes, don't worry, it's in a good place. I have it sitting right next to Edmund. I have it sitting right next to Gordon Lightfoot. Gordon Lightfoot. <laughs> it's like, all right, that's cool." He used to always talk about uh, the next typo album is going to be a hardcore album, and apparently, he said that about every typo album. Oh, the next one's going to be a hardcore album. <laughs> he said a lot of stuff because, yeah, I think I, he felt I, guilt. I know that he also wanted to do a, an atmospheric shoegaze album too. Yeah, he had talked to me about that, and but you know, uh, he felt a little bit trapped by his own fame, I guess. And expectations that people had of him, and yeah, you met him, you know, he's a, he's a aloof, insecure dude. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I um, you know, he had other things he wanted to do, but I mean, he didn't do too bad for himself. But no. um, the one person that probably wouldn't agree with that would have been himself. He was very, you know, but that almost every musician I meet that is really into deep, dark, honest music generally has a lot of self doubt, really. It just comes with the territory. Yeah, I mean that's the, it's almost the impetus for a majority of the music. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Very few are well adjusted. And if uh, they are well adjusted, I've never been. <laughs> if someone's well adjusted and they're making dark, they're just being. Funny. They might be a poser. They might be a poser. <laughs> you know, a guy like Ian Curtis was putting his money where his mouth is. I mean, he was he was he was being real. Yeah, person was being real. They're being real. They're they're about what they are. They're just what they are. It's what we all should strive for, except for the end result of. of except for right. the end results. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we don't want that. No, we do not want that. <laughs> so we talked an awful lot about music, and there is 
uh, I think, a very literary bent to Lycia as well. Is there any literary influence that kind of looms large on your horizon? Like Carlos Castaneda, anything like that? Or, um, you know, Philip K. Dick, someone? You know, have you, are you, are you like a like astral it. projector? Have you like <laughs> gone and looked at my books? Because we're into the same shit, so I kind of figured. Yeah, <laughs> take those two guys, add Orwell, Bradbury, Kafka. Oh, Kafka. <laughs> that, there you go. That's 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 what that's that. If you listen to very early Lycia, uh, I, I that stuff is there. Um, the song Incinerate is really just me identifying with Fahrenheit 451. Mm -hmm. Literally, um, Kafka is all through the early stuff. Um, in particular, Metamorphosis. Um, I love um, other Bradbury stories. I like his, how he paints pictures of Americana with sort of a dark underbelly. Stephen King ripped them off. Yeah. And of course, you know, Dick and all the, um, you know, the, the, the elements that he brings in. I mean, I still, I mean, Man in the High Castle, just stuff like that, Blade Runner, all that stuff. It's just just amazing, amazing stuff. And um, 1984. Mm -hmm. I mean, working on the very earliest Lycia, the demo stuff preceding Wake, it was completely fueled with this sort of 1984 vibe. Um, it was just, it was everywhere. And it was really important to everything that Lycia did in the earliest days, um, I was constantly reading and bring, you know, bringing aspects into the music, but sort of morphing it with my own personal situation at the time. So a song like Incinerate involves my current state at the time and my inability to uh, keep relationships going <laughs> and sabotaging almost everything. And then, seeing that book and seeing the, the sort of the dark uh, repressive qualities of the story and just sort of relating it to myself at the time. So, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's very strongly in the early days. I, and then I think later on, Lycia just started feeding on itself. Um, and I stopped reading as much and, and then Lycia just became this entity that just, was constantly cannibalizing itself and taking earlier themes and, and growing on it and going farther and farther. But she, you, you can, you know, being a writer, you can probably discuss this more. Well, I wouldn't say that anything that I read has actually influenced any of the stuff that I write. I mean, vibe like same sort of stuff as him. I mean, except for the ad cheesy romance, vampire novels into the equation. Clearly I use that as a lot of inspiration for my lyrics. No, but, no, but um, like 1984 and stuff, that sort of desolate, like, again, it goes to the whole fear of time. And I mean, that's all connected to me. This like depressing world of gloom and doom and being trapped in your station and having no control over any of it. Um, is just kind of part of my overall vibe anyway. But for me, like 
because I write and I was, I wrote stuff before I was ever in a band. That's what I get my escapism from is writing my own stuff. So I don't really use other people's writing as inspiration so much with music as my own sort of form of escapism. And um, I always joke that every song I write is about love and death. It's essentially true, but you know, so that's more of an escapist. Sometimes I don't even understand what I wrote until sometimes way after the fact or never. It's just this kind of almost like a free form, what do you call that? Automatic writing kind of situation where stream of conscious. Yeah, it's a stream of conscious. Um, sometimes lines come out and he'll say what it, I remember specifically one time he asked me what that meant. I'm like, I don't know. It just came. And now in retrospect, when I look at the lyrics and the song and everything, I'm like, okay, I understand what that means now, but at the time I didn't. So I don't, I don't really get inspired by other people's work so much. Sometimes movies will do that for me though. Like I'll see, or, or a photograph or an image will set a vibe to me and that'll be my inspiration, but not so much people's writing. Well, I know you've uh, you've uh, inspired at least one writer I can think of, and that would be Poppy Z. Bright. No, I don't think so. Yeah, I I, be I believe I'd heard that from someone. I'm 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 just guessing, but that's what I was told by a fan of hers. His really? now another. I'm terrible with this. My politics suck. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I I believe I was told that. Maybe I am mistaken though. Oh, that's interesting. Hmm, that's interesting. That's that. That's fascinating. If that's true. Well, Poppy Z. Bright was big fan of of gothic, dark wave, a yeah. whole spectrum of music. So I mean, it would stand to reason that the person who told me this was telling me the truth. But oh. wow, that's interesting. Huh. But your re your your reach has has proven to be quite extensive. I mean, wasn't there a a story oh. about a Billy Corrigan and Marilyn Manson trying to get on stage with you at some point. Yeah, I don't, I don't I, that, that story. I don't know so really what to make of that. I don't know if they were there because they knew who we were or if it was just, they just happened to be there. I do know that they performed a acoustic thing. I think it was a Neil Young benefit a couple days later. And I think they wanted to get some practice. Who knows? Um, I don't really know. I know that a lot of times people will, read more into a story than is actually there. But yes, they did come to our show in San Francisco and Twiggy is the person that approached me to see if they could go on the stage. And it was so weird. Our setup is so different than other bands. You know, we don't have like a traditional setup. I mean, I had a rack mount of effects and a, and a DAT machine with our electronic parts. And I had my one electric guitar. I might have had a backup at the time. So it, it wasn't really something that was set up for someone just to step on stage and jam an acoustic song. <laughs> so, and we were literally moments from walking on the stage. We were on the stage. And so I was just like, no, no, I, I just can't. We can't do this. I mean, we just can't do this because I mean, I don't really know what it is that you're asking for. It was really confusing the way it went down because we were on stage getting ready to walk on, 
but the way this room was set up is the stage was just kind of in the middle of the room sort of so you were in the crowd but on the stage at the same time and they all come walking in and twiggy walks straight up to me and just is like who's going on and we're like i said lycia and he goes well we want to play and i'm like it was so out of context and random and i'm like well, you need to talk to him and so he goes to him and says the exact same thing but again we were so confused by like what the hell's happening right now and he was just like well no but there's like, there's a certain amount of tension that we had back then before we went on stage because you know we never really had a, a crew or anything right we were very self-sufficient so we would show up and it would just be the two of us and we had a, a person that came along with us that just helped us set up equipment and sold, sold our merchandise. We were dependent on the house sound guy. And the house, it was a completely filled house because Lycia had a pretty good following in San Francisco. And I was, I'm always really tense just before I go on stage. And usually I hang backstage and just wait. And like hide. And so, but I didn't have the opportunity. <laughs> we didn't have anywhere to hide. So I'm there and I'm just like, I'm my mindset is thinking, okay, is everything turned on on stage? Is everything good to go? And then suddenly I look up and there's these rock stars standing in front of me asking if they can go on stage. And I'm just like, I, I didn't know how to process that. It was out of context. It was and weird. so I told them no, and they seemed quite perturbed by that. <laughs> and I've often wondered, did I screw Lysia's <laughs> chance for maybe a big opening slot? I don't know. I don't know. I, I really don't know. I mean, there's some things behind the scenes that I don't feel comfortable talking about in public. But um, I think that that there was some it was weird there was some negativity on their end that i said no and i think it might have had ramifications down the line um but maybe then again maybe i'm just reading into something and they had no idea who the hell we were and they just happened to show up yeah. um but then again but people told us things it, it we was, heard other things situation. we heard other things to make us think that perhaps they might have known who we were but I'll just say that I would never crash a band's show just before they went on and, and say, hey, can we go up there and jam? I mean, it just it was it, tacky. It was so rock and roll and it just not like who does that for real? Who does that? And I've never I've never witnessed it personally. <laughs> and it was it was really weird. It's like maybe we're just this little band to you, but this is still our show. Like it was very and, weird. And I felt an obligation because, you know, this was we had been to San Francisco several times before and I always had good crowds. And so we showed up at this place and it was a packed house. And I, I looked out and I saw a lot of people I recognized and there was a lot of Lycia shirts and I knew there was a lot of excitement. And personally, if they would have taken the stage, I had serious, I had serious concerns that maybe our equipment would have been destroyed. And then because, we would have been done because yeah. think about it, they're up there and I, they can smash guitars. I'll just say that ones. there was a, there was some, I, I feel uncomfortable <laughs> saying some of this stuff because I don't want to be like spreading rumors, but they seem like perhaps they were in a different type of state. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't I just, doubt it. Like going up there and like, I want to play an acoustic song and I have this guitar with all these effects. Screw this. And then our tour is done. We're not, yeah, we we're can't not, buy new We're equipment. not like them. We can't just say, oh, go buy more. We're not sponsored by whoever. I mean, literally, if one of those guys would have went on stage and thrown my guitar down, the rest of the tour would have been over because we were literally functioning show to show. Yeah. Barely getting by. And so it happened. 
And it was, I mean, it makes for a fun story. It was a good story. <laughs> and I think over time, the story may have, it's like the famous fishing story. That fish is now this big, but in reality, it was this big. And I think if they had approached it in a different way, it, it would have been a completely different outcome. If they would have walked in and said, hey, man, we're here. We really want to get on stage and play something. Would that be cool? Fucking go do it. But yeah. it was, we want to play. Like, and it was so weird. That's all that was said. That was the only thing that was said. And I, and they, <laughs> they were all just staring at me. It was just, so weird. They're all just looking at me and, and like, Besides Twiggy, no one said a word. They're just staring at me, and I was just like, "Like, like, I was like, who are you to what, say no? What am I supposed to do?" It was yeah. very, I felt very, I felt very like we're we're a populist band. We always have been. I felt very like I felt a sense of responsibility to the people that were had paid to see us, and you know, and also, I'm, I'm not a hobnobber either. You know, no. I'm just like, you know, hey. I think I actually said to them, did you, I think I said to them, did you bring any equipment? And, and then I also think I said, you can do it after we're done. But this is what I remember. I remember them going, we want to play. And Mike goes, excuse me, like, excuse me. And they go, we want to play. And he goes, did you bring any equipment? And he said, no. And then he goes, then I guess you're not playing. Like it was hilarious, but I mean, I didn't mean it that way. No, he didn't mean it that way, but because it was such a like, what the hell's happening right now? I, I get in a zone before we go and play, and I was in that <laughs> zone, and you know, I'm trying to figure a way to just get on stage and do our show, and it was <laughs> yeah, it was a bizarre. It was You're a, all worried about is the guitar unplugged, or you know? Yeah, I mean, I was. I think I was getting ready to go on stage we to were getting, do my final tuning. Yes. And so it was just a really weird distraction. I mean, it was bands of those level. I mean, they should have, they had better. crews and they had money behind them. You know, they were living, especially at that time. They were at yeah, the height of their popularity. They were living this major rock star type lifestyle where them doing a show was different than a club band doing a show. And so I don't think they, I think they forgot what it was like. Or they just didn't. Or they're care. just rude assholes. One or the other. Um, Very true. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, there's. If you ever want to talk about this off the record, we got other things <laughs> to say, but we're not going to say it in a podcast. Absolutely, totally understood. And you know, to be fair, it's probably for the better that you don't have any association with uh, the aforementioned right. band. A hundred percent. Yes. Let's just say there was a vastly different experience between them and like the other bands that we've been involved with as far as people being nice and not nice. We've, we've met some other well-known bands that were, um, in, insanely cool. Yeah. And they didn't need to be. Mm. Yeah. There was no need for them to be that way. And they were so, and we've been around other people that have been just horrible. Um, including small bands, mm -hmm. um, just horrible, 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 and um, it, difficult to deal with. You know, people with egos and attitudes. And I, this isn't reference to these people that we were talking about before, but just in general. Just in general, I don't need. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need Marilyn coming for us. <laughs> oh yeah. Although, I don't... yeah. No, I'm just kidding. No, I, I don't. I don't think he's coming for anyone anytime soon. He should be hiding. It just depends on whether you know. 
the, the they allow that from the jail. Yeah, whatever, Brian. Yeah. Or he could just hire someone to tell a different story online, which I've been seeing recently. Yeah, yeah we all we all know fascinating. The story. I mean, come on, let's just be real. We all know the story. Yeah, I've yeah. seen him numerous times in person, in non-musical things, to know that the guy is what people are saying is true. Well, his, Allegedly, his his old benefactor has echoed that everything that people say about him is true in Trent Reznor. Trent probably Reznor wants nothing to do with the guy. Right. Yeah, he probably should have said that back. Then. I guarantee he must regret that. <laughs> well, he saw money. He saw money. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. So I guess in closing. Um, I know a little bit of what's next with the cold reissue and everything else. We're just going to kind of have to wait and see, I guess. Right. Well, right now, nothing is actually in works right now. Um, except for the cold reissue, except for the except cold, for the, cold reissue. the only thing that's in terms of there's zero new music going right now. Nothing. Um, it usually takes a, a while to percolate after an album comes out. But as I hinted earlier, John fair and I are talking about, doing some may potentially doing some old redoing some old material like we did in Casa Luna, but probably more of the guitar based stuff, but it's hard. It's hard because going back and re-listening to some of that stuff, it's over 30 years old and your, your, your style of how, you know, how you play changes. It morphs over the years. And um, it's, it's been a trip listening to that old stuff and, even trying to visualize how I'll dial the effects in mm. is good. It's going to, it's going to be a challenge. Um, but, um, I have faith that it will happen, but I mean, we're going to try it. If it happens, it happens. If it don't, it don't. Um, if it don't happen, who knows what will happen down the line. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I didn't visualize, I mean, Going into January of this year, I, I didn't envision Casa Luna. Yeah. We, were, we had one song that we were going to do a split with another band. It's a split seven inch. And then that band's schedule was insanely busy. So we decided just to do our own single. And so we did another song. And almost instantly, it was an EP. And it was released and it was in our hands and it, it was, it was quickly how fast that passed. And if you would have asked me last December, do you have another release in you? I would have said, no, we're done. We don't have any more music left in us. And just like that, it happens. And so I can't imagine just, I, I, I quit my mind a lot, but I'm, <laughs> I'm passionate about this and this is what defines me. And so I probably will be doing this until I physically can't do it anymore. And um, then you'll be instructing Dirk how to do it. Well, I'll be finally doing more ambient albums. Yeah. Uh, but no, so we're, we're still active in, in the, in the way, in the strange ways that Lycia is active. Um, I've got a million book projects. She's got tons of book projects in terms of live. This is something we have to just like let go because mm -hmm. we we the last real show we did was in 98. We did one ill 
ill-planned live show in 2009 that just didn't go well. And when we left there, we're like, we're never doing this again. Our situation is just so hard for live. Uh, it's not like a band that just has, okay, I have a guitar part, a bass part, a drum part, vocal part. Let's just go and do it. Um, we started Lycia, me and John started um, working under the Lycia, 19, uh, a Lycia name in 1989 under the premise that we don't want to be restrained by having to do something that we could play live. We wanted to use the studio and as far as we could. And that leads to problems with trying to replicate things live. And I think in the 90s, somehow, some way, we pull it off to a degree, even though I feel our live show in the 90s was a massive compromise. But I really wish we could have brought extra musicians and crew and a light show and everything out. But you know, couldn't afford it. We couldn't afford it. And so um, we still get live offers all the time for all over the world. Everything we dreamed of in the nineties is offered to us. It's now, so depressing. I just don't know how we, we really could it's do like it. It's like that dangling carrot. That's just out of reach all <laughs> it, the time. It's just, like I said, if I had to define Lycia, it's that we've always been out of sync. Always. We've never been in sync with anything. We've always been the outsiders and everything happens to us at the wrong time. I mean, even equipment, I talk, I look at all the <laughs> equipment that's available now. I remember back in like 95 and 96 when we lived in Ohio with Telterra, I'm going up to the music store. I'm going to ask them about if they have equipment like this. I'd come back and like, oh, they say that doesn't exist and it never will exist. Well, that's all the stuff that's out now because bands are performing like what we did back then. And if we would have had that kind of stuff back then, Oh my what gosh. if somebody screwed up the timeline and we're on the wrong timeline? Well, um, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're into that too. The, oh, the okay. Mandela, Mandela effect and all of it. Yeah. So maybe we got somehow <laughs> off the wrong timeline. We're, so we're just slightly askew from where we need to be. That and C3PO has a silver leg all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. What's the deal with that? <laughs> I don't buy it. I don't buy it. He never had a silver leg. No, <clears throat> I call shenanigans on that. I, I do. I, I well, there is also that line, Luke, I am your father, or whatever, that they say he's never said, but everybody says that that's what he says. Luke, I am your father. He doesn't say that in the movie, apparently. No, he says, No, I am your father. Yeah, but, right. But everyone's yeah. Luke, I am your father. Yeah. No, that you can't that's trust the I only trust the VHS. That's it. <laughs> yes. The only true barometer. Yeah. But yeah. Right. Anyways. <laughs> now that my mind's completely blown. <laughs> I get creeped out sometimes going down those rabbit holes on YouTube mm -hmm. of conspiracy theory, but like good conspiracy theories, not stupid ones. Yeah. Well, they're stupid, but you know what I mean? Harmless conspiracy <laughs> theories, let's just say. <laughs> But um, it's fascinating, all those Mandela effects. And it is. Sometimes you're like, wait a minute. I do remember that. So how can we all collectively have the same wrong memory? It's bizarre. Yeah, the Berenstain Bears versus Berenstain Bears, the, the entirety of it. Uh, it's Yeah, it's bizarre. Mind-boggling. I just hope I don't wake up someday married to someone else. Then I'm going to really have to <laughs> see. This is stuff that I think for stories down the line, like random weird stuff. Like all of a sudden you're just someplace else and you have no idea how you got there. And 
have to figure it out. This is, I think Kafka was trying to warn us. Yeah. Glitch in the matrix. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, this interview has gone in places I never dreamed it would have. It's pretty amazing. Good fun. <laughs> Absolutely. And it is currently midnight my time, and it's the latest I've been up in approximately three years. <laughs> right on. Well, we apologize because sometimes no, we, go off on, we go off on our rambles. In fact, um, I've sort of tried to check myself in this because <laughs> in the past ones I've sometimes rambled on and rambled on and one thing to the next and off and Next, you know, I wake up the next morning going, oh, my God. What did I hit? What did I do? What, 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 what the hell's <laughs> wrong with me? Well, actually, you successfully eliminated about a half a dozen questions that I'd had for you without my even having to have asked them. So that's. Congratulations on rambling. See? All right. Yeah. <laughs> it, was worth, it was worthwhile. I don't know who's astral projecting to whom at this point. Right. <laughs> yeah, we're all just getting bombarded from everywhere, mm -hmm. different dimensions and. Speaking of, we need to watch that movie that we we're that, that alien one. Mm. Which know. one? I don't know. The one that um, JJ Abrams or whatever put out, know. or whatever. I think you're ram. I think you're moving into stuff that we should be talking about yeah. in person. We're all <laughs> live. In a I think we're all, we're all tired at this point. <laughs> I've been up since what four twenty. Yeah. Well, guys, I will at that. I will let you go, and I really, really appreciate all of this. This has been so much, so much more interesting than I could have possibly dreamed. I so much appreciate it. Well, likewise, very fun to talk to you. Absolutely, you as well. And hopefully, I'll talk to you again someday soon. Absolutely. All right. Thanks. Have a good Thank one. You. you as well. Good luck potty training. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. 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 Now.